The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And today on the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens when a wee prankster of a Babylonian Diablo escapes his sandy tomb? Would it wreck havoc right where it stands? Or would it take the surreptitiously circuitous route, transatlantically hopping from its Mesopotamian soil to a Ouija board in DC to a bedridden 12-year-old girl? Was this really the best choice? Do demons really work in mysterious ways, or do they sometimes maybe just make bad choices? Well, let's find out, because today we are confronting William Friedkin's 1973 classic theological horror film, The Exorcist. So strap in and assemble your holy wards as we shed some light on the detailed shadows of this film's incredibly well-documented creation. Brought to you by Hell-dwelling, cock-sucking mothers, homicidal radiographers, the old crucifixion handy, casual sadism, and doing anything to get the shot. And of course, our safe word today is atheism. Anything to add, Benji? This movie makes masturbation by crucifix look way easier than it actually is. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of... Space! Boy! I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my god! Disappointed! Jesus. Well. Oh, hi, Mark. Patience. Hey, um, hey, London. Yo, Benji. That's not my goddamn name. This goddamn movie is a goddamn masterpiece. God damn it. I mean, sure. <laughs> oh, oh, now we're we're going to go that route with it. Okay, fine. I do feel like I am going to controversially upset some people today by just being mediocrely enthused about The Exorcist. Oh, oh was there a problem with the folklore? Is that it? Is that your problem? Like it always no, is? actually, the folklore is fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, well. I do find The Exorcist to be a technically really competent, interesting film. They're making a lot of the right choices. It's just going to be a personal thing where demon possession narratives just, just don't really do it for me. So what are you going to do? I would say that the critique of this movie, the modern critique of this movie, is that it is a victim of its own reputation. This movie, when it came out, was just so groundbreaking on every level possible. By modern standards, it's like, yeah, her head turned around. That's kind of funny. Well, yeah, so that brings up, yeah, the changing fluctuations in terms of expectation, audience expectation, audience sensitivity. Because we have another film that almost got an NC-17 <laughs> or X at the time rating. Another film by William Freakin that almost got an NC-17 rating. What? This guy, yeah. I tell you. William Freakin can't seem to, yeah, just keep it under that Poor X guy, going just in. just can't but... catch a break with those rating boards. So this was a film that was initially submitted, and they wanted him to do a whole bunch of edits. Except for there was a man named Aaron Stern, who at the time was the head of the 
MPAA ratings board, who actually screened this by himself outside of the rest of the ratings board, and allegedly called Friedkin up and said that he thought The Exorcist was going to be an important film, and he would allow it to receive an R rating without any of the cuts. So we have Aaron Stern, I guess, thanks for as much of what we got in The Exorcist. Well, okay. Even though when it came out, a lot of people and a lot of places still tried to ban this work anyway as something obscene and prevent (gasps) it from being screened in theaters. Obscene? Obscene. And there'd be two places in particular that had court cases. Boston is going to be one of them and a certain area in Mississippi. I think it was Hmm. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, both tried to shut down certain screenings of this. And why this is kind of relevant to stuff we've brought up before on this cast is because our good old friend Miller versus California (laughs) from 8mm comes into the fray here where the Supreme Court had to actually make some decisions and they used the 1972 Miller versus California case, the one that lets us know our standard or standards for what is and what is not considered obscene. And they did determine that The Exorcist did not quite fall into the categories of the Miller obscenity test. And so they were able to screen this or the attempts to prosecute theaters for screening this film did not stick. So the Miller versus California actually helped the exorcist out in this case. Also, fun censorship fact that I learned about this while researching it is that the exorcist was apparently available on home video for a wee time in the UK until 1981. And then there was something called the Video Recordings Act of 1984, which did determine that this film was too graphic or something of that variety. And thus, The Exorcist was actually withdrawn from video release in the UK and remained unavailable for purchase until 1999. Wow. So The Exorcist was a video nasty over in the the UK. One of those films. It was, yeah. Wow, okay. I mean... I didn't see that coming, but apparently... Well, there you go. I mean, God, there are a lot of films. I think, uh, what, Clockwork Orange was banned in the UK for decades after its release, which came out around about two years prior to this. Yeah, so audiences over time, it is quaint to look back at something like The Exorcist <laughs> and say, this is an X-rated movie. Oh, this no! was banned for X number of years in certain places. It's kind of astounding. And so we do see that growing apathy of watchers, I guess, in the modern age. Oh, Mutilating her own genitalia with a crucifix. Yawn. We chose to do this film because Halloween, the month of October, it seemed fitting. Yeah, it's a fitting uh, October movie. So we're theming. We're theming here. And it also, to me, does have a little bit of a calling attention to the fact that I'm watching a film, but... I don't think that's going to happen necessarily for everyone. One of the interesting things about The Exorcist is that so many people can watch it for so many different things, take so many different things out of it. I find this film fascinating on a technical effects level. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that this came out in 1973, prior to digital, prior to CGI, it's really 
fun to try to deconstruct how a scene is actually happening, how it was put together, how they are actually making these things move. There's a lot of really cool mechanical stuff. There's a lot of cool physical makeup stuff Mm -hmm. from Dick Smith. So Dick Smith worked on this. He was the makeup artist and that makes me very happy. (laughs) And so I do pay attention to how this film is constructed. Okay, yeah. If you're looking for those elements, then yeah, I can see why it would. Yeah, that's what I get out of this film. There also is a very interesting lingering thing for a lot of people. So The Exorcist is one of the most successful horror films of all time. For the longest time, it was the highest grossing horror film This would be superseded a wee bit by Sixth Sense and then It. So Hmm. the 2017 It, not the 1990s one. Well, the made-for-TV one, no, I can't really imagine that (laughs) outgrossing this. It should have, though. Tim Curry deserves (laughs) to outgross everything. (laughs) But, yeah, this is a lasting horror film lots of people intrigued by it and a lot of people attribute that to its theological spin that a lot of people are very unsettled by this fundamental premise idea of good forces and evil forces and demons tend to freak a lot of people out yeah i'm sure the idea that the novel that inspired it was itself inspired by what was then considered a true story added a an extra spooky element for a lot of people who went to see this back in the day. So, what is the best thing about this film? I would have to say the way that it uses its environment to get across the emotions of the characters, the way that the sound design creeps up on you in ways that you weren't expecting. Basically, I think this film is just a visual and auditory masterpiece. A masterpiece might be a strong word, but that's what affected me the most when I was re-watching it. Yeah, I agree. The construction of this film Mm -hmm. is, as I already mentioned, the most interesting thing about it. God, we're making bold statements. Look at us just making the the brave statements there. What's the worst thing? Worst thing about this movie, it's kind of a two-way tie. One is knowing that because of this movie, exorcisms, the need for exorcisms in the States suddenly went through the roof. I mean, I feel like you could say that the need for exorcisms and the obsession with that area of Christianity or what have you laid the seeds for the satanic panic that was to come in the 1980s. And it just led to a lot of very foolish undertakings by a lot of people who were only persuaded because of this movie, which itself is based on events that themselves were highly fabricated. So there's that. The other thing that's horrible about this movie is Ellen Bernstein's haircut. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. It's not the best, although (laughs) many 1970s haircuts weren't necessarily the best. Victim of the times. Victim of the times. Yeah, I too have, I suppose, two worst things about this movie. The first one is just going to be a personal thing in terms of just not being that interested in demon-based stories, unless it's Mm -hmm. Jennifer's Body. Love that film. But yeah, the demon stuff where they're just possessed and lying around in a bed just doesn't do it for me as a narrative. This is not exorcist exclusive. This is just the whole trope of the genre that I'm I'm not as enthused by. And because of that, I think because I don't have that creeping, lingering worry about demons, then instead of being unsettled by this film, I'm distracted by the demons in this film in terms of how they operate. So I question that throughout in terms of why this demon is doing certain things 
why he can do certain things but not others. It becomes very confusing in certain ways when you're just focusing on the logistics of the demon instead of being scared of it. And then the second thing is that I do both really enjoy and I don't enjoy William Friedkin's sensibilities as a director. He has mellowed out in his later work so much to the point that when he gets to Killer Joe, he's a great director to work for. He becomes sort of an actor's director. Mm. Back in the 70s, he was still an insane asshole. Oh, boy. I mean, the stories about what he did to the actors on this thing, and then you combine that with how they got the chase scene in the French Connection and how many laws they were breaking during that. Holy shit. Yeah, Freakin' yeah. was a madman. This man will do anything to get the shot. So in preparation for this, I did watch some commentaries. I watched and read a lot of the makings of The Exorcist. Also, I'll, say I'll point out a lot of the places where William Friedkin is doing some things just to the side of the camera to these actors throughout that gives me some mixed feelings about the construction of this film. Other topics that I will bring to this, I suppose, are just some of the demonology in terms of what folklore they are drawing from. I'll talk a little bit about those Ouija boards. And what else was I talking about? God only knows. Yeah, uh, a little bit of casting stuff. So yeah, I'm going to bring sure, a little sure. bit of the technical stuff right and on. I'm going to bring a little bit of the folklore stuff. And you are going to bring to us... I'm going to tell you all about the sequels and the prequels, uh, which I watched during what I like to call the Fuck My Life Film Festival. <laughs> Because, fuck my life, I watched all of these movies. Good God. One of them is okay. One of them? How many of them are there? Uh, there are, well, there's Exorcist 2, The Heretic, Exorcist 3, also known as Legion Exorcist, and then there are two prequels, but they're actually only one prequel, Exorcist The Beginning and Dominion, an Exorcist prequel, and they're the same movie. What about the exorcism of Emily Rose and when are those related? Those are like inspired by the story that inspired the novel, that inspired the movie, that inspired all the sequels and the prequels. The story itself, we can get into that later on, is just full of fabrications and like elements that if you look at it not through the lens of a Catholic priest, it's very clear that this kid was not possessed. All right. So that being said, the lightning summary. So there's going to be a wee Diablo, a demon of sorts that is discovered and or unleashed mm -hmm. in some sort of tomb on an archaeological dig. And somehow that demon is going to end up in Georgetown, invoked through a Ouija board, possessing the body of a 12 year old girl who's the daughter of a movie star. And they're going to have to try to diagnose her through science, mm -hmm. through medicine, through oh. psychiatry, and finally the fools. through demonology. Aha! They hit and then it. we're going to titularly excise this demon from the small girl's body. And along the way, there are some cocks sucked in hell, just, you know, for good measure. But aren't there always? Well, I mean, someone has to take a break. I just, when you have that line where it's like, your mother sucks cocks in hell, I'm like, first of all, good for her, you know, like, <laughs> way to go, like, forgetting some. And second of all, like, isn't that, like, the hedonist paradise idea of hell? Like, doesn't everybody just, you know, I know suck it, cock in it, hell? 
it's spoken like an insult. Like, she could be having a good time while she does that. Who the hell knows? I was like, that sounds like a lot of people's, like, paradise. Like, just, just chill out, demon. All right, so... Let's let's break this down. Let's break this cocksucking paradise down. You know it. I always thought that that classic tune, I forget what it's called, the tubular bells or uh, mm-hmm. that. I don't remember what it's called either. Yeah. Like that always. I thought that played over the opening credits. I was wrong. We actually only hear that once in the entire film. Yeah, I was trying to do a little bit of research on the scoring for this film, mm-hmm. and it is a clusterfuck like in terms of which reels had what music because it seems like different versions actually have different sound really and that the original person who did the score came in to do it and william freaking hated it and threw all of the tapes out into the parking lot and so they didn't use any of those fired some blanks at him for good measure like freaking will do yeah, and then Friedkin went and assembled like different stuff from different places, and then there was a rock band later on that <laughs> got their stuff what? taken and used in the film against their knowledge. They were like, the fuck, we don't want to be associated with this. Oh. So it, there was just this whole stuff with the score that got so convoluted that I'm like, I can't actually speak on this with any sort of authority because it's very confusing. I'm glad we established that to begin with. <laughs> so yeah, I don't even know exactly where... And when that particular title-associated music comes into the canon of The Exorcist, but I don't believe that it was from the very beginning in terms of even when it was put in the stuff. And I did also find Friedkin talking about how if he had known about Tangerine Dream at the time, he would have gotten them to score the film. Well, obviously. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, I love Tangerine Dream. So Tangerine Dream, most notable probably for doing the score to Risky Business. And once I read that, I was watching this movie, all I could hear was the Risky Business score in my head while I was watching this film. And it does add a weird, certain surrealist feel. So missed opportunity there. all, All good film is collaboration. So that's the opening credits with the not the theme but some other theme thrown into it. We go straight to a blazing sun that's in black and white at first and then slowly fades into color. We're in the desert. An archaeological dig is going on. Sheep are also being herded. A title tells us that we're in northern Iraq and there are workers everywhere picking and digging at the earth, attempting uh, to uncover what looks like an old building of some sort. A young boy is running, 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 and yells, Hey, they found something! And we see our, our man, played by Max von Sydow, Father Marin, who is very interested to see what this boy has found. Yeah, first of all, first of all, there are a lot of people yeah. at this archaeological dig. From afar, it looks like an ant colony is happening on this area. I had not seen The Exorcist in a while, and I had forgotten about this opening, and for a second I thought I had accidentally put in an Indiana Jones film. <laughs> I, I was thinking like, that. This is like low-key Indiana Jones. Like, Father Marin is like the old Indiana Jones Chronicles or something. <laughs> So this is actually a true archaeological site. It's in Hatra. And Mm -hmm. apparently the temperatures during the day could reach up to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it limited shooting to just the early mornings and the early evenings, which is why we get a lot of these great just red sunrise shots. And then it gets dusky a little later on. But that heat just does carry into the frame. This entire opening Mm. scene just looks so miserably warm. Father Marin is walking around. He 
goes to where the boy led him. They show him a coin of some sort or a necklace piece. And he's like, well, this isn't of this area, is it? They're like, no, no, we don't know what that is. And then he digs around himself and pulls out a small statue figurine that's dirt is caked on to it. He has to pull it apart. And it's something that disturbs him a great deal. He goes to check another side and he looks up and sees a statue of something. Well, it's a statue of Pazuzu Fazuzu. Pazuzu Fazuzu. We exit out of this opening scene with this beautiful shot of Father Marin and that demonic statue of Pazuzu Fazuzu, whatever you want to call it, just framed together like they're two, you know, like warriors about to duke it out in a battle to the death. Well, so I had some questions about this opening scene in terms of its setup and also just some observations. Sure, 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 yeah. We do set up, so Uh in the 25th anniversary edition, we have William Friedkin coming forward like it's some sort of TV show from the 80s where he's just going to introduce what's about to happen. And he does categorize the entire point of this film as a film about the mysteries of faith. and. And that is one of my favorite things about The Exorcist is that it does provide this really rich tapestry in some ways where we have Father Marin who's walking through this area and the people that he's interacting with are clearly also devout men from different forms of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And yet they are very close with each other. So his very good friend, when they're categorizing the different statues that they've found on the dig and stuff, who's like, oh, I hate to see you go, right? And they mm-hmm. embrace. And then he kind of leaves the area and you have that group of people that are doing the Muslim daily prayer. Mm-hmm. And since he's not a part of that, since he's the, the yeah, resident just Catholic, he's just kind of them. walking by them. Yeah. So there was this really cool kind of setup of, this is a world with a lot of different faith structures sure. intertwined within it. And they're all getting along at this moment in time, which is uh, is kind of interesting hmm, and nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to this like Fazuzu Pazuzu. I'm going to use both interchangeably. I did double check and look this up. So Pazuzu is what they do say throughout the Exorcist film franchise. Though not in this film. No one ever says the name of the demon in the first film. In the second one, they say it a whole lot, but not so much this one. That is true. And then it is based, however, on a Babylonian god from the Mesopotamian area region, and his name is Fazuzu and Pazuzu interchangeably. So All right. I kind of like saying Fazuzu better. It's just more fun to say. So first of all, this demon... He is the demon of the southwest wind in Babylonian mythology. Southwest. Occasionally okay. the king of the demons of the wind. Mm-hmm. So he, he's a wind dude. And he was thought to bring famine during the dry season and mm-hmm. locusts during rainy seasons. Not a popular guy, I take it. Yeah, well, it, this is where it gets a weirdly interesting because people did occasionally have these little talismans that would invoke him because he had an arch nemesis. Oh. That, arch nemesis it wasn't jesus it was well. it was a chick named lamishtu now lamishtu is another kind of demon mythological lesser god person attributed to attacking 
pregnant women and unborn children or women during childbirth. So she was usually blamed. Miscarriages were usually blamed on her. Mm. Stillbirths were usually blamed on this woman. This has an interesting tie to the to the prequels then. Okay. So Pazuzu, he, he was kind of sometimes an ill-willed evil spirit because, you know, he's bringing locusts and famine and whatnot. Locusts, you say. But he also was your best bet against Lamishtu. So you could invoke him to come and try to combat Lamishtu for you. So there's evidence that, yeah, people who were dealing with fertility superstitions would sometimes try to invoke his help. So if you have a kid on the way and you definitely don't want the kid to be a miscarriage and you're cool with locusts, call on Pazuzu Fazuzu. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and he can help enough. you out. You know, he's, cool. he's not doing anything else if it's not, you know, the dry or the wet season. So it's fine. But... They do have statues of him. And so the statue mm. that they're using is a statue of Pazuzu. It's a statue that seems to say, hi there, because it's waving at you. Hi, I have a boner, because it does. Yes. It's got a Which... just rocking him like, wow, good good for you, man. Nice. Yes, um, Pazuzu is often portrayed as this hybrid of animal and human parts put together generally uh. a head of a lion or a dog he generally has talons mm-hmm. and a scorpion tail and a serpentine penis oh. and so that serpentine penis is important and yeah i mean those are very replicated pazuzu statues and so those do look authentic enough to manage to be able to recognize him if you like Babylonian mythology. In film, authentic enough is all that you can ask for sometimes. <laughs> yeah. There are two more important setups here. Are these really rich tapestries of the red suns? And Friedkin did talk about this in interviews in the commentary in terms of really wanting to get some establishing shots in places that were full of light. Because this entire film thematically is going to be about light versus darkness, and he wanted that to be very, very literal on the film reel. So Fair enough. All of his scenes are either going to be very brightly lit, or they are going to be very shadowed, and there's mm. not going to be a whole lot of variation in between. No. And then the sound mixing. So the sound mixing on this film is infamous. I think I mentioned on Killer Joe, too, that I associate Friedkin's movies so strongly with sound and this very 70s sensibility of multi-track layering. Mm -hmm. And that really comes through in The Exorcist. We're going to get these two dogs fighting, and they're going to start growling at each other. And then you're noticing that this is a very uncanny, uncomfortable sound because it's not just dogs. It's pigs squealing. It's bees buzzing. Mm. It's leather creaking. And they're just going to, the sound mixer is going to just take a bunch of different tracks and going to lay them over each other and just provide that discordant cacophony of sound. And it is effective. Sound is very effective in this. I agree. So, yes, we fade to Georgetown. We have Ellen Burstyn, who is a movie star. So it's a, an actress playing a movie star. Yeah. <laughs> who's on location in Georgetown filming a film called, I think the film was Crash Course. <laughs> I believe it says on the call sheet. We see her making notes on a script uh, while she's holding a cigarette. And that's a legit note-taking bed sprawl. Yes. Well, some noises disturb her. She goes to check things out. She goes uh, to check in another bedroom. And in that bedroom is her young 12-year-old daughter, Reagan. And the window is open. Like, oh, what the fuck is that all about? She's annoyed. Closes that window and everything's better now. She goes down to the kitchen 
where I guess her in-house cook and caretaker are doing work. It seems she has, like, in-house servants. So this lady is, uh, she's pretty high up. So one of the things that was infamous about this movie was trying to cast it. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the mythos that this movie was cursed and had all these things happen while on it and that it was impossible to cast. But when looking into the casting, it was actually quite mundane in terms of why they couldn't really cast it at first. So they first approached Audrey Hepburn to play Ellen Bernstein's role. Hmm. She was like, sure, but I'm living in Rome right now, so we'd have to film it there. (laughs) Oh, Audrey. And Friedkin's like, yeah, we don't have the budget for that, so pass. And then they went to Anne Bancroft, and she was like, sure, but I just got pregnant. Can we wait nine months? Uh, And Friedkin's like, "Uh, that's asking a lot. Also, not really sure that you're just going to be raring to go right after you have (laughs) a baby to then go do a child possession demon movie. Like, no. And then... They went to Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda is the one that actually <laughs> oh boy. turned it down right away because she turned it down as being a quote unquote piece of capitalist ripoff bullshit was her response. I guess, wow, I can really see Jane Fonda saying that too. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jane Fonda. So um, wait, a piece that of... was the attempt to cast this wait, and then they went with Alan Burstyn. How would she phrase it? Piece of... What was piece Jane... of capitalist ripoff bullshit. What was it ripping oh, no. off? I don't know. No. I don't know. I just like that, like, she's just so little and angry. It's, oh. it's fun. And then oh. we get trying to cast Linda Blair's role. They saw a lot of 12-year-olds, and they couldn't find anybody at first that could handle the material and or whose parents would let them handle the material. So they did mm-hmm. look at the the chick who played Violet Bullegard and then the Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory movie, but okay. her, her parents were like, nah, we don't really want her, you know, masturbating with crucifixes. I guess Linda Blair's mother brought her in to audition outside of stuff, and the she seemed very mature and capable. She seemed to understand a lot of the materials, so they were like, all right, cool, because Friedkin really didn't want to cast somebody who was in their 20s to play a 12-year-old. He, he looked around, he's like, nah, there's nobody who can pull this off, so... They found Linda Blair. So these two were very unknown, both Burstein and Linda Blair at the time. But some just sort of interesting little casting stuff. Cut to a movie set. Uh, the director is talking with Chris. We have like this. I love the director character because I think he's just always drunk all the time. She's arguing with him like this. The script doesn't make any sense. He's like, you want me to, to find the writer? I think he's hiding somewhere in Europe right now. This is where we first see Father Karras, who's in the crowd kind of laughing at the absurdity of the argument that the star and director are having. Well, it is an absurd argument, to be fair. It's filmed in a really weird way because she comes out and she asks questions about... So this is also where I know Crash Course or something of that nature is written on the trailer that she comes out of. This is the movie they're filming. Mm. And it's some sort of inspirational movie about her as a teacher that is arguing for the furthering education of her students. And in the script, they're about to tear this educational building to the ground. And so she has to get up in front of these protesters and talk about leaving the building and letting it be. And her question is like, well, why are they tearing the building down in the first place? (laughs) That is not explained in the script anywhere. It's like, should we ask the writer? And she's like, can we do that? And he's like, nah, he's in Paris fucking. And then she laughs and they hug and the crowd laughs and it's like was that really that funny of an exchange like it's a very weird human interaction how did everyone even hear that (laughs) 
so yeah, it's just a, it was the most tonally off moment in the entire film for me. It was just this strange exchange. I feel like there was a whole thing that got cut or something that we missed, but yeah, yeah she's, she's defending the building. Mm, that makes with a sense. Megaphone. Okay, yeah, defends the building with a megaphone. Father Karras, uh, he walks away, briefcase in hand. Chris, later on, has finished the scene, goes back to her car, decides that she's going to walk home and walks through the Georgetown neighborhood. And this is the only time we hear that music. Yeah. The music that everyone identifies with The Exorcist, surprisingly, is really only heard in full in this one scene. And actually, that's something that will happen a lot throughout this, is that the things that are iconic about The Exorcist are so minimally used in the movie itself. It's shocking when you really get down and char it out. Yeah, there's a lot of minimalism happening in this film across mm-hmm. the board. Chris gets home, goes in, and talks to Sharon, uh, this young adult woman who lives with them. And I could not figure out who Sharon was. How many people live here? <laughs> who but... are these people? The sense that I got over time was that she's kind of the nanny babysitter of Megan while the mother is off shooting her scenes. That tracks. This character shows up again in Exorcist 2, and her relation to Reagan is still kind of a mystery to me in that movie. But one thing that Chris says to Sharon about the film that had me, like, scratching my head, Sharon asks her, how was the film shoot? And Chris says, oh, it's great. It's basically a Walt Disney version of a Ho Chi Minh story. The fuck is that? It's like the Schindler's List of science fiction. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't Battlefield have Battlefield Earth reference for those who missed that episode. Sharon delivers like the minor news that Chris. Oh, she's got an invitation to the White House, which you know, just yeah, whatevs. There you go. We see Reagan running around. Reagan's just the, she's just the happiest, nicest little kid you ever damn did see. She's just so happy talking about the horsies and she's running around the mother and the daughter. They're having a fun all the time. Yes, indeed. Now we get to some scene with some badass sound design that I really like where Father Karras is now walking through the subway. We get a beautiful shot of this subway as the subway car is coming down the tracks and the pink light coming off the subway matches almost exactly the pink light of the sun that we got in the opening scenes, which was kind of cool in a weird way. These just pierces of this very peculiar pink light that we get on occasion. And it's just going to come hurtling down the tracks in Mm. this gritty, shadowed space of the underground. And this homeless man that is sitting there by the side of these tracks is going to look up at Father Karras and say, Father, can you help an old altar boy? I'm a Catholic. And Father Karras is going to give him the most disgusted look as the light flickers over his face. And that subway roaring. That's like what I was talking about earlier, where it seems like the sounds of the environment are just speaking for our characters and emoting for them. Like, that's what it feels like probably for Father Karras. It's like, that's how loud he wants to scream at this guy is how loud that subway car is rattling by. And it's a curious decision to do with one of your principal supposed to be sympathetic characters because dick move, bro. (laughs) Well, Father Karras is now walking down a very run-down neighborhood, and later on there are some indications that this is Lower Manhattan, and Lower Manhattan in the early 1970s is not the Lower Manhattan that we know today. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, this is like pre-gentrification or whatever you want to call it. No, you're starting to call it pre-Giuliani. Pre-Giuliani, yeah. I mean, pre, pre a lot of things, but definitely pre-Giuliani. And there are kids jumping on cars. There's all homeless people all over the place. Father Karras walks into an older apartment building and he goes in to see his mother. Also, he's walking through this derelict space and... I'm just thinking, if this was Joel Schumacher, like, this scene would be lit up because we're going past these just dirty stairwells, and yet there's nothing that interesting about the space. Like, it's not fetishized. Everything is very, very shadowed yeah. so that we're only getting glimpses, and that just shows a fun little difference between directorial visions and styles that mm -hmm. Friedkin really wants to bring in those shadows, and we talked on 8mm how Schumacher just loves those derelict, decrepit spaces and generally puts them front and center as the most important thing to look at in a scene. And so yeah. it's just a fun contrast. But yeah, we have him walking through shadows to the point where we mostly just get his sil silhouette coming in into mm. this entryway of his mother's. He's walking through a lot of darkness to get to his mother. His mother is inside, asleep on a chair, listening to the radio, and she's ecstatic to see him because, as we find out later on, Karis does not come to visit his mother very often. And his mother thinks that something's very wrong with him. And he's like, no, no, it's it's fine. I'm I'm good. I'm good. It's it's cool. But mom knows something is off. She does. He's like, you know, you should really be in a home so you aren't alone. Mm -hmm. And she's like, yeah, I'm not gonna, though. Like, it's just, she, she's gonna do her. One thing I noticed about the like transitions in this movie is that we don't you know, traditional movie wisdom tells you you have a scene and then when you go to another scene you have an establishing shot so a top shot of a neighborhood of a house or you know, whatever this movie does not always do that and it it kind of works in a way because it is jarring I think I've criticized other movies in the past that don't do this and it's just confusing but here I think we're meant to be a little like oh, whoa what what's happening now. Because right after this scene, we then go to the basement in that house in Georgetown. And Mom finds the most terrifying, the most satanic, the most demonic artifact in this movie. A Ouija board. Fucking Ouija board! Good God, a Ouija board! Holy shit, this just got real! I love Ouija boards. <laughs> I love them so much. Along with my... Vintage receivers that were was brought up in uh, Boogie Nights. I also have a collection of Ouija boards throughout their production history. That, that's my humble brag of the day. I, I've got this, uh, <laughs> this really sweet collection of Ouija boards. But this Ouija board in particular is the 1967 William Fold model. Because... <laughs> Mark II. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that this is a very contemporary board. It's the model that came out in 1967. Right. This is a 1973 film, so. Ouija boards were not really much of an, an occult or, or spooky thing prior to this movie, and then suddenly, after this movie, they totally were. Yeah. Right? Something like that? To a certain extent. I mean, there's a little bit of stuff with the Ouija board leading up to it, but in terms of a mass culture pop culture awareness level of the Ouija board as a possible demonic summoning entity. Yeah, we really get that right here with William Friedkin and the Exorcist. Well, uh, Mom says, well, what's this all about? And Reagan says, oh, well, that's, uh, you know, Captain Howdy and I talk on that. Who's Captain Howdy? Oh, you know, I ask the questions and Captain Howdy gives the answers. And she says, well, why don't you show me? And she 
tries to go for the what is the the thing with the glass in it? What's that called? The planchette. The, yes, the planchette. Uh, Chris tries to touch the planchette, and the planchette just immediately just jerks away, as if Reagan didn't touch it. It just moved on its own, and Chris just says, "Oh, I guess you really don't want me to play," and doesn't think that it just moved on its own. It's like the the oh, first. Oh, weird. We watch different versions. Really? Of the film. Okay. Yeah. All right. I forgot that there are edits that were put back in later. Really? So, okay. Yeah. So I was watching the original cut of this. Okay. I watched the 25th uh, version. So in the original, nothing jerks away. She just sits there with her little board and asks, Captain Howdy, do you think my mother's pretty? Oh, and okay. there's no response. So okay. she's sitting there with it and she's like, Captain Howdy, that's not very nice. Yeah, that happens. I guess like just that little moment of the planet moving on its own was what was put back in, which yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah, that got cut out. Was the spider crawl in yours down yeah, the stairs? Yeah, spider crawl is in okay, my version. Okay, so yeah, you did watch the thing where stuff was put back in because mm-hmm. the spider crawl was not in the original version. Um, okay, cool. Because I know that William Friedkin wanted a very, very slow escalation build, and so... This is a moment of slowness. It's just mm-hmm. this little girl is acting a little weird because she has an imaginary friend named Captain Howdy. And, yep, kids have imaginary friends all the time. Sure, so maybe, yeah. maybe that shit just tracks. Although I would be worried that she calls it Captain Howdy because that is... <laughs> <laughs> That's not a choice name for any imaginary friend. I'd be like, you could do better yeah. than Captain Howdy is your imaginary friend. Kind of strange. So the Ouija board, a, a little stuff on the Ouija board, yes. The Ouija board is going to be based off of just talking boards in general. So there was a spiritualist movement that happened in the middle of the 19th century that would sort of bring about this whole spiritualist craze of talking to spirits or trying to contact the dead. And there were talking boards. There's actually talking boards that even predate the spiritualist movement. But the Ouija board specifically is going to capitalize on the spiritualist piece of public domain and is going to try to patent something specifically. And how they managed to patent it was say, like, well, it's a talking board, but it comes with a planchette. And it is marketed under <laughs> the name Ouija. And that is going to be brought to us by a man named Elijah Bond in 1890. But William Fold, his employee is really going to be the one that's going to take this and turn it into an institution and so he's going to start producing boards under the name Ouija in 1901 they're going to have a heyday in the 1920s as a fun parlor game well fun yeah like I mentioned, the one in this film, there's different versions of the Ouija board that are going to come out over the years. It's really fun on a folklore level to just see the shifts in symbology and what that means for the culture at hand. The one that they are using in this particular film is the 1967 enlarged size. So Parker Brothers made three boards in the 1960s. One is the standard one that's going to remain in publication until 1999. Then they're going to do a special edition wood one. And this one's kind of the the middle tier Goldilocks board, which looks like the wood one, but is on hardboard and is larger than a regular Ouija board. So because when they bring that out of the closet, right, like it looks huge. Like It looks like a really big Ouija board if you're used to Mm -hmm. interacting with um, or seeing Ouija boards. And that's because this one is actually a much bigger size that was produced in 67 with the idea that it would be easier for two or more people to interact with it. So for those that are interested in Ouija board history, like I am. Who isn't? I'm not, but whatever. You, you do you. 
No, why the Ouija board is really interesting on a physiological level is that it actually demonstrates something called the idiometer effect. And the idiometer effect is it's a whole umbrella of stuff, but it is really when your body moves or performs subconscious actions based on generally eye movement and patterns, sometimes thought. And there's some really cool stuff that comes out of predominantly Penn State and University of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania actually has a couple of really cool programs that look into the psychology of paranormal and supernatural folklore and whatnot. Mm -hmm. They have this experiment that I love to show my students in, in some of my folklore classes where there's this recording of these participants that are using a Ouija board and they're really getting into it because they're asking it questions, it's moving, and they're like, holy shit, this Ouija board is working. And then they have them blindfold themselves <laughs> and ask again. Uh -huh. And the planchette is still moving around, but suddenly it's not actually pointing to any letters. Oh. Sometimes it goes off the board. It's going all over the place. Well, that, and then they the have excitement. them take the blindfold off and watch the footage back. And they're like, wait, what the fuck, right? And it's like, well, it's the idiometer effect because when they track their eye movement of people using Ouija boards, they'll notice people will look, their eyes will actually move to the A right before their hands do. And the brain is not necessarily fully registering in your consciousness that you're actually doing these movements. Mm -hmm. My students sometimes get really sad that there is a scientific explanation for why <laughs> they might be using a Ouija board and it's moving on its own accord. Damn you, science! Yeah, but if anything, I was like, isn't that freakier? Isn't it freakier that your body can do things without your conscious awareness? Like, isn't that more I mean, terrifying than ghosts? That I don't says know. a lot Maybe of terrifying things about the idea of free will, I'd say. Good lord. Yeah, so, and it relates to kind of the overall types of phenomenon. There's there's a bigger classification of sort of automatic motorized effects, but in the way where if somebody throws a baseball at you and you generally reach up and you try to catch it, right? Or something's coming at your face and you go to block it. This sure. is not generally a conscious movement, right? Your body just moves before mm -hmm. you can really register it. So right. it's all kind of related. Or if you think about something and salivate, right? It's that automatic response. Your body is doing stuff that you don't necessarily tell it to do. It's just a, a response. So yeah, that's where the Ouija board demystified really comes in. Not really a demonic thing, yeah. not really associated with demons. But fascinating all the same, I'd say. But it's still really cool. Yeah. Back at the house, uh, Chris is angry. She's on the phone, very angry that she can't reach Regan's father. You get the feeling that Regan's father just does not want to be involved with their life whatsoever. Maybe they're divorced, maybe they're not. Movie's not very clear on it, but suffice to say, this is an absent father figure. And Regan is, she's listening in on her mother, clearly not at ease. Yes, and this kid's name is Regan, but oh, Regan. we're just going to have to let this happen because yeah. I'm pretty sure you're going to just keep slipping back into Regan. <laughs> but yes, it is Regan. Regan. <laughs> like the movie star slash later president who had not yet... <laughs> Run for presidency at this time. I my, I forget her name about as much as Reagan forgot a lot of things himself. So there you go. Hey yo, <laughs> edgy jokes, folks. We got Belated them here. dig on Reagan. Yeah, 40 boy. Years after the fact. <laughs> we're we're bold here at Cinema of Cruelty. Hot take. Hot take. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, later on that night, Chris gets a call and apparently has to film a scene very late at night. Okay, yeah, this was a very like what the fuck thing because she gets a call and she's like, what? We're, we're going over scene 61, but I, I was already in bed. And you're like, what asshole of a director just calls impromptu 
I will, okay, so I obviously was not in the film industry business in the 1970s. Right. So I can't confirm or deny that this never happened. I can say that I have never worked on a film in which they did not adhere to the call sheets. Like, there were times in which the time that was initially stipulated on the call sheet would run over. Like, we ran over all the time, but... At no point was anybody called in for an emergency scene shooting at midnight <laughs> for scene 61. Like, that just seemed crazy because you have to get everybody there unless they just wanted to rehearse it for some reason. But once again, with the things that William Friedkin did to his actors on set, <laughs> I would not be surprised if Friedkin was the kind of asshole that would call these impromptu scene rehearsals. I think somebody's projecting. It's also weird because she doesn't actually seem to ever go to this rehearsal. She gets up and she is wearing this nightgown. And this nightgown really stood out because mm. it is completely backless yeah. and tied around her neck in a halter style. And it just seems like a flimsy, uncomfortable thing to sleep in. And I guess that contextualized my earlier question. When she puts on a robe, and this is something that people do in movies in the 1960s and 70s all the time, just putting robes over pajamas. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what kind of monster does that? Like, you're already wearing clothes. You don't need another layer. But Better put on my robe to make my way around the house. Yeah, it's just like robes over clothes never made sense to me. But I guess... It's kind of like a sweater, but in worlds where sweaters exist, like, I don't know. But here with her backless halter, it made sense that she had to go and yeah. put on a robe. But she's been called in for this emergency meeting of scene rehearsal. And instead, she hears those little scratches going on in the attic. And so she decides, I'm going to pause what I'm doing and I'm going to pull down this ladder and just go check out the attic first, because that seems more important. And at this point, she still thinks it's rats. And so what's the plan here? Like, you think your attic is infested with rats, and so your plan is to go up there in your nightgown with a gothic single candlestick in the middle of the night where this is the only light you have. Like, what's the follow-through plan if you came across a rat in your attic? <laughs> oh, there, I got it. Know. I'll get it with my candle. Yeah. Yeah, no, like, no. Other than just opening these attic steps to let whatever vermin might be into the look, attic into the main floor of the house. Look, like, I she don't know was what the plan just is. aroused from sleep. Her game plan isn't very concrete just because she's like half asleep still. What are you going to do? What was interesting about that, when she got up, she noticed that Reagan was asleep in bed with her and said, like, what the hell are you doing here? I couldn't sleep. My bed kept shaking. Well, a little strange. But when she goes up to the attic and looks around, she just finds rat traps that are untouched, so clearly no rats. And out of nowhere, her candle goes flamethrower very briefly on her. That candle could have gotten caught in like a spider web or something, so I'm not that concerned. Could be anything. Daytime. Church bells are ringing. A priest is bringing flowers into the church. This is a very long walk across yep. the courtyard. He's going to have a pot of flowers in each hand, and they're just going to get a long take of him just walking across the entire length of the courtyard to get into this uh, church. I hate it when people take way too long to do something, don't you? But I'm sure I'm glad we're going to spend two and a half hours talking about all this. Thank, thank God. Me too. For... Yeah, Me too. that's great. And he sees the statue of the Virgin Mary has been defiled. More or less. It seems like she's been given horns in her eyes and a horn down in the 
the crotchal area. So you know, she's just... been given that serpentine penis. You know, the yeah. the Pazuzu way. Pazuzu <laughs> just wants everybody to have a dick like his. Mm-hmm. And so he's he cares. You know, he does. Now we go to a clinic where Reagan is getting a checkup, and as she's lying on the doctor's table, the face makes an appearance, which I always, in my notes, I just always put it like all caps, THE FACE, because it's that demon face this film is so famous for that scared the shit out of people back in the day. And the face appears for seven frames of film. Like less than a third of a second, this face appears. Excellent. And this is also the only time that the face is moving. So, Interesting. yeah, yeah. It's like any other time the face, like when it flashes, it's just more or less a still image or it's not moving at all when we see it. This is the only time the face is kind of moving. It like it just snarls, though. What's fascinating about the face is that even when I was rewatching this the first time around, the face still gets me. It's still like, whoa, whoa. God, that's terrifying. But then when you stop and you pause it, it's really a fascinating example of how something can scare you when you're only given a fleeting glimpse of it. But when you stop to look at it, you're like, oh, this is just someone with a bunch of white face and nasty teeth. Eh? Yeah, that's actually Eileen Dietz. So that is Linda Blair's stand-in. Oh, all right. There are some quote-unquote subliminal moments in The Exorcist that the movie is infamous for, these little I like that quote-unquote you threw in there. Well, so the quote-unquote for the subliminality of this is because William Friedkin and... Is Blatty's first name William as well? Yeah, William Peter Blatty. Okay, so the Williams had (laughs) quite a, a controversial argument over this, where Friedkin referred to the stuff in this as subliminal film stuff Mm. and then Blatty's response was it's not subliminal if they can see it yeah (laughs) so there's this yeah back and forth on whether or not it it actually is technically subliminal because like yeah you can see it so it's quasi subliminal yeah yeah you're not uh is anyone else hungry for a demon face all of a sudden that's weird I don't know huh strange the doctor talks to Chris about the issues with, with Reagan the doctor says does Reagan curse and her mother says no Reagan doesn't curse what are you talking about She was cursing when I was examining her. Really? In what way? He says, well, she told me to keep my fingers away from her goddamn cunt. And watching this, all I could think was, well, did you? I mean, just it's an honest request. But yeah, there's a lot of things in here that could actually be taken as Reagan has been sexually abused. Hmm. The way that yeah. it's phrased and whatnot throughout, there's a couple of times that that comes up, and it's like, this seems like sexual abuse, actually. I could but... see that. Okay. Yeah, this is also the, the first time that the mother says, uh, should I take her to a psychiatrist? And the doctor says, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Just give her the pills. You're good. Harris's mother is going to take ill, and it is a slightly harrowing scene just because we get to see 1970s public hospital Ooh, health care yeah. of the elderly. And that's a mm, horror show yeah, that terrifying to watch. supersedes demons, in my opinion. But the other thing that's going to make Karis a little sad is that his 
uncle mm-hmm. is going to mention if you had become a psychiatrist instead of a priest, you'd have money right now. You'd be living in a Park Ave apartment and you'd be able to take care of yeah. your mother and Fuck this put guy. her into private care. And so, but that was an interesting yeah. take on you chose this life of poverty and devotion and now your devotion's not even that strong. So uh. what are you doing really? <laughs> God. So, yeah, he goes in to see his mother, and his mother is also, like, the uncle blames him. Mother blames him, too. Like, why did you let this happen to me? Why? Why? And the only response he has is to go to a gym and just box his frustrations away, just punches the hell out of a bag. Yes, because he's a preacher, psychiatrist, boxer. Again, man of many hats, man of many habits. That classic trifecta, you know? Yes. And now we go to a party with an astronaut. More movies need astronauts at parties. Yeah, I mean, especially, so this is the creme de la creme of society. You've got movie stars and astronauts. In the 1970s, astronauts were a big deal. Drunk Burke was my favorite thing in this entire film, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, this guy plays this a good drunk, to be sure. was endearing. I usually don't even like inebriated people at all. There's a very few select individuals that go on the list of that are more tolerable and enjoyable when they're drunk. And Burke is going to be one of them. (laughs) We are introduced to his character in this party scene by him just exclaiming, there seems to be an alien pubic hair in my drink. (laughs) You're like, all right, this guy wins. Like, I I don't know. And he he seems delighted about that alien pubic hair. So um, I'm delighted by him. Yes. Father Dyer talks about Father Karras, where that's where well, Chris asks, like, who's this this guy I keep seeing at the church when I walk by? Like, oh, that's Father Karras. He's going through a bad time. His mother just died. So we're given the news that we, since we last saw Father Karras, his mother is has passed away and apparently was just dead in her apartment for several days before the landlord found her. So, Which doesn't make any sense, because last we saw, she was in a public hospital. Yeah, so I, the timeline is a little wonky. I was really confused by that. Now, little Regan is going to come down the stairs at this party in her little nightgown, and she's just going to look directly <laughs> at the astronaut and say, you're going to die up there. And then she just starts pissing on the floor. She gives Regan a bath. She's like, why'd you do that? And Regan is silent. Uh, in bed later on, Reagan's like, what is wrong with me? And like, I don't know. Just take your pill. Like her mother literally just says, just take your pills. Like it's going to make it all good out downstairs. The maid is cleaning. Reagan begins screaming again. Chris runs in and now the whole bed is starting to shake. Like just going nuts. Yeah. This bed is something about, and next question is like, why can't this chick get out of bed? (laughs) Why, why not just get up and walk out of it? Uh. But this is a cool little mechanical moment. So they did have the set builder here and one of the special effects prop designers built three different beds on mechanical platforms to do three different things. So one of them pushed it back up and pulled it down. So we get that thumping motion. Another one, I think, vibrated. And then there's a certain other levitation movement. Mm -hmm. So they had three set beds that had the mechanics underneath that allowed it to move in the way that it does. And that's going to remain consistent throughout this movie on a cool mechanical build level. All of the motion had to be done on set and built in. And so there's a lot of machinery that's actually existing 
inside of the arbor or underneath the bed or harnesses later. Cut to where Father Damien Karras lives. And Father Dreyer goes to visit him. Wait, Dyer or Dreyer? Am I getting that wrong? Apparently it's Dyer. I just looked that up again because I couldn't remember. Father Dyer is visiting him because obviously he's in a state of mourning. They drink very expensive drink. Yeah, he steals him some alcohol, which is kind of nice. Yeah, he's a good he's guy. He's a buddy like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And they get drunk, and Father Karras takes the Lord's name in vain, because he <sighs> has this, like, oh, Christ, lament, which is kind of fun. Yes. I'm like, I thought you weren't supposed to do that. I don't know, because I'm not a Jesuit priest, but it seems like it's not something you're supposed to do. And then, yeah, we get this dead mom dream. Within that dream, and like in the dream, it's obviously about his mother, and his mother is coming up from a subway station. He tries to run and can't catch her, and the face appears twice but only for one frame each so we're up to a total of nine frames of film that the face has appeared in so far nice that face counter we cut from the dream to reagan back at the doctor where she's like fighting with the doctor and the nurses she calls the doctor a fucking bastard and doesn't want like to take a shot that they're trying to give her yeah chick's a badass and spits in this dude's face then they're diagnosing her as having this brain condition and they need to get her into that machinery. Mm-hmm. We, we we get this procedure done on Reagan. What the fuck is this? Because there's a giant needle that goes into her, another giant needle that goes into her. She's losing blood a lot, it seems. And the most scary instrument or x-ray cameras of all time are just put all around her head. So do you have information on this? I do. Thank God. I was worried you didn't. Go ahead. So what this is, it is a cerebral angiography. And what they're doing here is they are inserting something into um, the artery that runs along the neck, the cartoid artery. That is something that was done in the 1970s, up until the 1970s. They're actually going to change that a few years after, not because of The Exorcist, but they do change to a more distant artery a couple years Mm. later in terms of what to tap into, just because you don't necessarily need it to be that particular one in the neck. And there's some problems that can occur with that type of localized injection. But what they're doing is they're actually going to pump in a contrast sort of a contrast dye and so that on scans you can see that contrast dye light up in the vascular system Mm -hmm. to see if there are any blockages or if there are any leaks so where that dye sort of flows and they're kind of cool images these angiography images because you can see just the vascular system in the brain and it looks pretty cool So the results are beautiful. The happenings are going to be a little uncomfortable because, yeah, they get that first injection right in there. And since it is an artery, that blood is just spurting in increments all over the body. There's just so much brown happening, too. There's the brown of that iodine, and then there's the brown of the surgical gloves. Mm. So it's not the blue surgical gloves they're used to. They're wearing these brown ones. And it's just a little bit of that uncanny. I think it came up in Boogie Nights that why was everything brown in the 70s, right? And it's like, here's here's another example right here, right, is that we just get these browns. And the sound of this machine when it starts... 
doing the imaging is just going to be this clacking, clanking, reverberating sound. She's going to be squirming around and squealing a little bit. They're going to have taped her chin down to try to minimize the jerking around so it's not to upset the carotid artery. So there's a lot of stuff happening here. But yeah, what they're trying to do is get a vascular image of her brain to see if there are any locks or hemorrhages or blocks. Mm -hmm. But or leaks, hemorrhages, or blocks is the three words I was going for there. What is also unsettling about this scene, this was filmed at the New York University Medical Center. So this is all actual medical equipment at the time and actual radiographers that are present in this room. And one of them, the one with the slightly deadened eyes, is Paul Bateson. And who is Paul Bateson? So Paul Bateson is going to be a young man who was a radiographer at the New York University Medical Center, Mm -hmm. who a couple years later is going to be charged with the murder of a young journalist. After going home with him at a bar and then stabbing him to death. There's a whole kind of interesting little thing with him. So he is convicted of murdering at least one person. But while in custody, they started to suspect him for a series of serial murders that had been going on in the gay leather community in New York in the 70s. It actually is pretty tenuous. He was never convicted of these other murders, just the one. So is there a cruising relation to this movie? There is a cruising relation. And so William Friedkin, when he later found out that Paul Bateson had been arrested for this murder, was like, that young man? But he was so pleasant. And he went and he got permission from Bateson's lawyers to go and talk to him in prison, which is where allegedly Bateson also confessed to Friedkin or implicated himself in these other murders. And Friedkin was like, I'm going to make a movie about you. All right. And so he goes on to do Cruising, which is also based on a book um, that had also come out about 10 years prior from the movie Cruising, but also based on this series of murders. And (laughs) so the book, it doesn't name Bateson. And it's like I said, it's still pretty tenuous. Bateson's murder of this one journalist does not quite fit the MO of the serial killer that was targeting the gay community at the time. But that is where we get Cruising from was because Friedkin had worked specifically with this guy that was their primary suspect in the case. And he was a young man that hung out at BDSM leather clubs in New York. And so he was part of that scene. Yeah. So we can save a little bit of the details of the Paul Bateson case because we'll probably do cruising at some point. But that is, yeah, that's that's Mr. Cruising right there. Wow. Shoving a needle into little Linda Blair's neck. (laughs) Wow. That is so weird. That's the other like most interesting thing to me about The Exorcist is just like the weird connection. You start to see why people were saying that this movie was cursed in some ways or there was something very freaky about it. That's bizarre, right? But I mean, yeah. if you work on enough films, eventually you know. one of the people who peripherally involved is going to have killed somebody. That's just You know, you have enough episodes of a dating show, eventually a serial killer is going to pop on there. It just Exactly, it exactly. Happens. Yeah, <laughs> we both know about that. Uh, that's, that's who we are. Yeah. So... Yeah, now uh, that's the medical scene all around. But now the doctors are getting called by Chris, house call. They run over to Chris's place, run in to see Reagan, and she is like spasming, jumping around, seemingly not even of her own control. Poor Linda Blair to be really thrashed about by the Steven. And how they did this 
is that they had this corsetry rigged that tied on the sides and was attached to this metal bar in the back. And they mechanically hooked it up to this machine that is actually just thrashing her around. So it's pushing and it's pulling and it's pushing and it's pulling. Linda Blair in an interview has talked about this moment because there are two times on the film that both Blair and then Burston are going to suffer back injuries. Mm. Blair is going to suffer her back injury right here. God. Because the corsetry had come a little loose on the side. And so she wasn't just going back and forth. She was going back and forth and sideways and all over the place. And she was in a ton of pain. And they didn't think to have a safe word because the dialogue in the scene is no, no, stop, I can't take it, and her screaming. Always have a safe word. That's the one thing that we do here is always have a safe word. Yeah, right? Yeah, You always need a safe word, but... Except for 8mm, because obviously... (laughs) Yeah, because there is no safe word for snuff, but whatever. (laughs) And in the interview, she's like, she didn't know what to do because she just screamed louder and she was trying to say, no, really, really. And we get that in the film because that is the take that we actually get in the film. It's her saying, really, really, this hurts. And she's screaming and she's crying. They were like, no, this is the most accurate take. Like, we got it on film. Let's use it. Good Lord. That's messed up. Yeah. So that was that one. And the, uh, yeah, the neck is just going to be kind of like a balloon sort of air pumping thing that's happening there. But yeah, poor little Linda Blair is just getting thrashed about. I'm also worried that she's going to hit her head because it's coming really close to that headboard. So this is a very uncomfortable scene for me to watch on a technical level. This is a very unsafe scene and there were consequences. It'll be tough to watch again if I ever do. God, that's messed up. Uh, This is the first time that we hear the deep voice where they try to approach her. She sits up suddenly, smacks them away and just says, stay back. This sow is mine. And then lifts up like her dress and like is shouting out like, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me. Like, ha ha, this got weird really fast. They finally hold her down, have to give her a shot of like, I don't know, Thor. I'm thinking Thorazine. There's a lot of Thorazine in this movie. Yeah. And the voice. So the voice is going to be another technical, interesting component. Mm. Her voice is different in different scenes. So in some scenes, they do use Linda Blair's voice that has been recorded, slowed down to a point where we get a little bit of a baritone and then sped back up to normal speed after that voice pitch has been lowered. So in some scenes, it is Mm -hmm. a modified version of Linda Blair's voice. There were times, I guess, that Dick Smith became very close with Linda Blair while working on this. So he is the the special effects makeup artist. And he's this sweet old dude, apparently also in interviews, according to Dick Smith, asked... How, how do you feel about just having to swear like this all the time, right? Like, are you are you okay? Are you comfortable, right? And she's like, well, it's not me. It's it's Reagan. So she okay. did separate herself. So Linda Blair is pretty cool. Good on but her. But for the really, really graphic verbalization moments or for other times where they wanted the voice to be a little bit even more degraded, Friedkin talked in an interview on this kind of behind-the-scenes making interview about how he really wanted this voice not to be exclusively masculine because at first the different sound mixers Mm -hmm. were just trying to vocalize it themselves and then distort it. And he's like, no, I don't want a specifically man's voice. I want it to be a very androgynous mixture with some very distinct masculine points, some very distinct feminine points. Then he mentioned that it dawned on him that Mercedes McCambridge would be perfect for this because she has a very unique voice. 
So they brought her in and I guess had her swallow a bunch of raw eggs and whiskey and then just do a bunch of lines (laughs) for them to record and he said even before they started manipulating the sound of her voice just some of the things she was able to do with her raw vocal talent raw eggs and whiskey was kind of astounding i think she also began smoking during this as well just to further fuck with her voice i I read a little bit of that too but yeah mercedes mccambridge she was bringing a lot of crazy stuff to this Although, like, freaking said, like, yeah, we brought in Mercedes McCambridge, we fed her, like, raw eggs and whiskey, and we strapped her to a chair. And I'm like, why did you strap her to oh, a yeah. chair? <laughs> what did that add to Jesus the Jesus freaking, is there no end to what you will do? My right? God, so, man. Okay, whatever, whatever. Huh. And, uh, yeah, so we get this, this child that uh, is saying some stuff in some freaky ways. This leads into more scary tests being done on Reagan. And this one, she's strapped down to a table and a camera or something is just moving around her head a lot. Uh, Do you know what this is? Yes, they're going back in for more. So at some point they are doing EEGs. They also do some spinal taps, but the angiography is really the main thing that they're using to diagnose here. And at this point, they still find nothing wrong. And... The response is going to be like, okay, now, yeah, it's time to start looking for a psychiatrist. Maybe now start looking for that. And I I know that I'm just like watching all these horrifying medical procedures and the suffering of this woman who thinks that her daughter is either incredibly sick on a medical level or she is profoundly suffering some sort of mental illness. And I'm like, at this point, you kind of hope it's demons, yeah, right? Like, that like, seems actually, like, the lesser ugh. of any of the evil options. This chick just has a demon in her. Like, it's fine. Uh, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice, yeah. Chris drives home, and on her way home, she sees some police on the street, goes inside, phone's going off, the lights are blinking. She runs upstairs, sees that the window to Reagan's room is left open. The room is very cold. Tucks her in, goes to talk to Sharon, says, like, what the fuck? Why did you leave the the window open? And Sharon says, oh, well, I didn't. I had to go out and get some Thorazine, as, you know, you do for for the child. The the neighborhood run down to your local drugstore to grab your Thorazine. Went to Walgreens, got the six-pack of Thorazine, came back, and Burke was here. And he was watching Reagan while Sharon was out. And (laughs) Burke doesn't really seem like the kind of guy you... You know, trust with the safety of a child, but whatever. Less than a minute after we're told this, someone comes in and says, I, you may have heard, Burke is dead. What? Yeah, he he fell down the steps just outside. He, he must have been drunk. We, we don't know. And this is very distressing to Chris. And if as if her night can't get any worse, it does. Because here comes Reagan doing a nice little spider walk down the steps with a super bloody mouth. Now, this I know was not in the original version. Yeah, nor should it have uh, been. Yeah. <laughs> this was apparently was an effect that they filmed at the time, and it was a gymnast who, to do the walk, was supported by some wires. And when they did some test screens of it, the wires were too obvious. And then come the year 2000, the technology was there to digitally remove Stuff like that. So they went ahead, removed the wires, and put it back in. And it's still, yeah, it's weird, no matter what. (laughs) Yeah. It just doesn't really flow. Mm -hmm. And Friedkin felt very strongly about not having the spider walk Hmm. appear at this point in the film. So it wasn't even just the effects. 
because I watched some series of interviews, which I know you've seen parts of before because we briefly talked about them. There were some interviews with the Williams, (laughs) Friedkin and Blatty, Mm -hmm. sitting side by side. And they are uncomfortable to watch (laughs) because Friedkin does not give a fuck that Blatty is sitting right there and Friedkin's just ripping his stuff apart. But yeah, he's like, this was just too much too fast. I mean, he played the card that color out of space did not and said like we gotta let this shit build like we don't just all of a sudden have this chick spider walking down the stairs Uh that would be ridiculous even though it itself is cool like it's a cool physical movement it's a cool snippet but it just it didn't belong here yeah a little little weird a little out of place and a little too soon perhaps well we go from this into a scene of therapy where chris is aside okay psychiatrist let's do this thing The therapist hypnotizes Reagan and asks her, is anyone else in there with you? Yes. Who else is there? Captain Howdy. Do you want Captain Howdy to leave? Yes. Can I talk to Captain Howdy? No. And eventually, the therapist seems to coax Captain Howdy out in some strange ways. And this does not go well for the therapists. No. To say the least. Rarely does anything go well for the therapist. This was curious to me because apparently sedation and hypnotism are stronger than the devil. That, that's uh, my takeaway here yeah. because they are able to suppress <laughs> in tandem or at least this lesser Diablo that seems to be possessing her. I guess the yeah. devil responds to Thorazine. Either, yeah, either this is just a really good uh, hypnotherapist or the lesser Diablo decide this is going to be a great time with, to fuck with people because the voice deepens. Her eyes seem to go all white and she grabs the therapist by the balls and is a great shot where he falls down. The camera is falling down with him. I love I just love shots like that kind of like snorry cam style camera moves with the person. And then we have this police officer who's now entered the scene, Kinderman. Oh, and yes. Kinderman is here to investigate the murder of Burke and he jumps really quickly into <laughs> witchcraft black mass desecration and Satan. yeah it's interesting we get the feeling that he thinks there's some witchcraft involved here or something like it someone impersonating witchcraft rituals because he reveals to father Karras of uh, kinderman does reveals to father Karras that burke was found with his head completely turned around father Karras says like yeah i wrote a paper on witchcraft back in the day and kinderman says yeah i know i read it which is apparently why he's here to talk to him because he seems like he's the expert. But even the priest here, Kinnaman's like, yeah, the head was turned all the way around. And Karis is like, and it couldn't have just happened in the fall yeah, I mean, down you know. 92 feet of stairs. And Kinnaman's like, I mean, it could have, but it's it's not statistically <laughs> likely. I'm like, is it Much less likely. statistically likely than demon <laughs> possession and black mass witchcraft? Like, come on, buddy. Like Back at the hospital. They're like, so are you religious? <laughs> Is your daughter religious? Any type of religion? She's like, nah. And he's like, well, so it's a little out there, but you might want to try an exorcism. <laughs> and it's fun because it's going to be like four different doctors mm-hmm. that are sitting around in this room full of doctors. And they're each going to take turns delivering a line that's going to build up to suggesting you might need an exorcist. And at first I'm like, this this seems like an odd thing for this table of doctors to suggest, but then they do actually contextualize it 
Right. By, in a way that I like by saying, okay, so here's the thing that some people, if they truly believe that they're possessed, doing a placebo type of exorcism is going to be what actually ends up helping them. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Back home, they're taking Reagan up to her room. Kenderman is walking around outside, like checking out the stairs where Burke was killed. Chris puts Reagan to bed, finds a cross underneath her pillow, a little cr- like metal crucifix, and wants to know who put it there. Kinderman is looking up at the window. And he finds some sort of demon statue at the bottom of the stairwell, right? Uh, yeah, very briefly, at the bottom of the stairs, he finds something. It's not very, I don't think it's very terribly clear what it is he found. But well, it kind of looked like the same statue that was found at the Iraq I... site that Father Marin had found. While he's in the house, he does, like, go through some of the artwork that Regan, Reagan, <laughs> Reagan, that <laughs> fucking Nixon has put together. And... I think the connection there is that Burke had a clay figure that Reagan made when he fell. Maybe that's the connection there, but it's a very subtle thing. It's it's interesting. Oh, she made it? Because, yeah, it looked sort of like somehow this little statue had gotten to the bottom of the stairs. Yeah. That had traveled transatlantically <laughs> across the seas. You know what's weird? One of the prequels? kind of supports this theory that this little statue can travel underground to different places. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, think about that. Um, <laughs> there's Weird. there's some line that, that, that I, I love, like, some of the lines that uh, Kinderman has. Kinderman is a much apparently a much larger character in the, the novel itself. Like, part of the novel is from his point of view, and he is the main character of the third movie. So this was a character that William Peter Blatty really enjoyed, and he has a lot of fascinating things to say. And he says something like, you know, I, I just want I want to check this out. And Chris says, you, you want to look into that? Well, I mean, if a certain French doctor hadn't said, hey, what's this fungus? We wouldn't have penicillin. So, yeah, sometimes you, you got to look everywhere that you can. Yeah, I'm like, that's not as apt of an analogy as you think it is, man. <laughs> he also has this great line of, Watch out for drafts. A draft in the fall when uh, the house is hot is a magic carpet for yeah. bacteria. Oh, uh, funny. And I was like, that's such a great, like, strange, superstitious way of saying that. So, yeah, this guy is, he's superstitious. He's an interesting cat. And bef- the, I love the moment where before he leaves, he says, hey, could I, can I trouble you for an autograph for my daughter? And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, here, I'll, and he gives her a business card. Uh, what's her name? Okay, I lied. It's actually for me. Could you just... Yeah, thanks. He says, like, he saw a movie that she she made, a movie called Angel, apt title, and he saw it, like, six times. So, wow. Okay, this guy is... uh, He's a fan. It's really awkward. Yeah, he asks her for an autograph, (laughs) and there's that awkward moment where she realizes that the guy who's investigating this murder, possibly for daughter, is also strangely a fan, and that that <laughs> creates a certain interesting power dynamic. Yeah. And she locks the door behind him, because she's like, yeah, I don't quite feel comfortable with this dude. And then we get Ruckus upstairs. Oh, yeah. She runs up, and we get the infamous crucifix fucking scene. <sighs> yeah. This also, I got different reports from different actual first-person interviews as to who exactly filmed this scene. Really? Okay. Friedkin and one of the set designers both mentioned Eileen Dietz being the one to film or be the the body here that's filming the crucifix fucking scene. But then Linda Blair also mentions at the time, not fully exactly knowing the full breakdown <laughs> of masturbation, Good God. that 
even though there's an interview with her later or with Freakin later that talks about how she did know masturbation is, there's some confusing kind of things that go on. But Linda Blair does talk about how there was this like box with a fake blood soaked sponge that she had between her thighs and she was like stabbing this sponge in a box was how they ended up doing wow. the effects. Um, so it seems like the scene was actually a composite of Eileen Dietz as well as Linda Blair, but that is how they did the effects was this bloody sponge in a box that they were stabbing the crucifix into. Okay. It's kind of held between the legs. And from what I can tell, one of the differences between book and movie is that in the book, there's a lot more detail about what the injuries that Reagan is taking on because of this. And it goes into a lot of detail. When I read about that, I thought to myself, eh, you know what? I'm, I'm fine with not reading that part of the book. That is not information I needed. <laughs> so, yeah, and we have this this demon voice coming out of her that's just saying, let Jesus fuck you, right? And it's like, well, Ugh. maybe she would if it was a slightly more pleasant experience. Like, <laughs> get something that's not sharp and uh. angular, but I like where your head's at, but maybe let's take a step back, right? Oh. And also, I'm kind of, once again, I'm questioning why this Babylonian demon cares yeah. about Jesus one way or the other, but that's fine. I think when you view this, all of this, through the lens of a writer who is a devout Catholic, I would say that in the universe of this movie, other demons and other religions exist, but Catholicism is the top one. Yeah, I was... But it's the person I was watching this with, or I, I was positing some questions, and they're just like, yeah, you're just definitely not coming at this from the Catholic perspective, right, are yeah. you? And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> not at all. That's the angle you have to watch this So I, instead, I'm just confused by this clusterfuck melting pot that's happening here. But yeah, then she's going to grab her mother's face, oh. pull it into her, and just start yelling, lick me. Lick it's me, lick of, me. It's both juvenile and fun at the same time, yeah, I guess. a bit. And... Which is kind of this demon's M.O., it seems, throughout. It's just, he's super juvenile, he's super immature, but he's having a good time, so you just gotta <laughs> let him do it. It's like, oh, I can't even be mad. He's just such a fun fella, you know? What What are you gonna do? And he just does really seem like he's just trying to get everybody laid. Then he asks, like, do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? And then slaps Ellen Burstyn across the face. Yeah. And this is going to be back injury number two. Oh, so yeah, I've heard. Ellen Burstyn is also strapped into a harness in the scene, and she's getting jerked back by the stunt coordinator so that she actually goes flying backwards. And they did this take several times, and Ellen Burstyn even went to Friedkin and sort of said, hey, I'm they're pulling me back too hard. I'm going to get hurt. And he's like, nah, it's, it's got to look real, though. And... So she's like, yeah, but I feel pretty strongly I... about this. And so he pulls over, kind of in this showgirls-like way, calls over the stunt coordinators like, okay, don't pull her so hard. And then as she turns to go, she mentions she saw them exchange a look <laughs> and him oh. being like, just kidding, bro, pull her really oh, hard. Oh, god damn. So the stunt coordinator does, and she lands on her coccyx and Oof. bruises it. She screams she even mentioned in the interview remembering that that camera zooming in on her screaming and then um, person was like i just started yelling after that like turn that fucking camera off and call me an ambulance and that she was still a little pissed that they used the scene of her screaming because once again it was the best take yeah and so yeah that is Ugh. her injuring her coccyx in that scene good lord 
The really weird thing about this, though, is with everybody's complaints about William Friedkin on this movie, they would then, it was almost like the Stockholm Syndrome situation, because they would follow <laughs> it up with really liking William Friedkin, because she's like, yeah, I mean, Friedkin, he, he's one of my best friends, but he's a goddamn maniac, and I'm like, that's Good. your takeaway? Like, it was, it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. I've got so, back issues for the rest of my life, but hey, made for a good shot. Come yeah, on, no, how can you be mad? Apparently, these were not sustained injuries. They did heal, but yeah, I was like, I would... Yeah, be a little pissed at this director ever since, but no, she classifies him as a, as a really close friend, but who's also a goddamn maniac. And a lot of actors are going to say that too, that like he gets the best performances out of them, but he does it through this quote-unquote old Hollywood style directing, which is really uh, just manipulation and doing anything Lord. to get the shot. Yeah. Uh, an interesting thing about the scene I didn't notice until the second time watching it through for this is that when this is also where we get the first moment of the child's head turning around backwards and when it turns around backwards that's when reagan says like do you know what she did your cunting daughter but she does it with burke's voice so it makes it a little bit more obvious what happened to burke i think <laughs> i didn't really know i didn't really catch that because every time that she talks in a voice that's not her own you just like assume it's some sort of demon's voice but it was just i don't know i guess i finally caught it the second time around mm-hmm. that like oh it's the demon impersonating burke and using that fantastic phraseology of your cunting daughter. Yeah. And I was like, that's a gerund that I have not heard before, <laughs> but I hope I hear again. You know, like, Burke, he's British, so you're like, you know, the cunt, it's just like, ah, yeah. oh, you silly cunt, you, oh, it's no big deal. No, yeah. I mean, I love the word cunt, but I, I just hadn't heard <laughs> cunting, and I really, <laughs> I really hope to hear that again in the future. Creative verbiage there, yeah. The other fun effects thing here is that the sound that's going to happen when she turns that neck around is this creak and squeak and clack. And what that sound is, is the sound of an old leather wallet with credit cards in it getting twisted up against the mic for the recording. Nice. You will like this. So I don't know if you know this trivia fact, but this is is glorious. Okay. William Friedkin, when he was looking for more sound designers for this film, he had seen a movie a couple years prior, a little movie called El Topo by (gasps) Jodorowsky. No! And he was like, this movie, this is the sound I want. People, minions, find me the sound designer that worked on El Topo. No way! Oh my god, that's so cool! Yes, so they go and they search far and wide, and apparently the sound designer from Al Topo, he is a native Spanish-speaking individual that did not speak any English at the time, and they brought him on set, and Friedkin was like, he did not understand a word of the film, but he got it. Wow. (laughs) He just understood symbolically what was going on. He's like, we just set him up in the corner and he just did things like took this wallet, you know? So he was not the exclusive and only sound designer, but he was the guy who's bringing a lot of these just creaky, weird sound creation stuff was the sound designer from El Topo because Friedkin was like, he saw it and he's like, I need the man who created this sound. Nice. That yes. I really want to. Re- I, I need to watch El Topo uh, very soon. <laughs> so, oh, the connections, man. The connections. God, that's beautiful. They're everywhere. At any rate, this is apparently the breaking point for Chris because she thinks to herself, "Okay, you know what? Probably an issue with my daughter beyond the psychological. It's time to talk to a priest." And so, talk to a priest. She does meets with 
Damien Karras on a bridge. They uh, talk for a little bit. They get a little background on on Damien, how he became like he learned psychology or learned psychiatry uh, at Harvard. At Harvard, so he drops that. You He's know. like, oh, didn't I mention I went to Harvard? Harvard. You're like, no, you hadn't, buddy. You hadn't. <laughs> but it, it's just a funny way of just like an insert. Yeah. It was humorous. It, it was humorous. Indeed. And then it was also more humorous when she's like, how would you go about getting an exorcism? And he's like, excuse me? <laughs> uh, get in a time he's machine. Like, I don't know. Get a time machine yeah. and go back to the 16th century. Like, what do you want from me, woman? But basically, this dude is like, uh, I don't know how to do that, bitch. And she's like, well, you best figure it out because I'm a woman and I'm crying on your shoulder. And so we're going to reinforce yeah. some gender binary performativity here and you're gonna help me because i am a weepy she woman in trouble and he's like fine i'll go talk help. to yeah. the vatican mm-hmm. or the the top honchos in charge and see if i can get okayed for an exorcism so yeah. he's gonna go and do that there's some pretty decent bruise work on her face by the yes. way gonna throw that out there i i thought you would have some things to say about that bruise work yes yeah, it's some nice work and they steadily progressively fade that out which is mm-hmm. also nice so yeah dick smith i mean i don't have anything to critique about dick smith now <laughs> then we're gonna get this whole kind of progression of confronting this demon karis is gonna have to prove possession and he's gonna have to do it in the standard way by demonstrations of supernatural strength demonstrations of knowledge that the individual wouldn't otherwise have and speaking in tongues or languages that they wouldn't otherwise know and so our little pazuzu is going to check all of those boxes here pretty quickly when he goes to visit he's gonna be a little cheeky once again where Karis is like, I want to help you. And he's like, well, you might loosen the straps then. I'm like, oh, so cheeky, Pazuzu's <laughs> like, look at you, just like throwing in some lip. And Pazuzu's going to talk, and he's going to talk in tongues, or not really tongues, he's going to talk in other languages, mostly Latin and French. Mm-hmm. And once again, I'm like, okay, so you've got this ancient Mesopotamian demon. Yeah. Like, there are a lot of languages from the Mesopotamian region that this this demon could speak. French uh-huh. is not really one of them. Mm-hmm. Weird choice. Yep. Weird choice. Yep. Yeah, I, I, a little bit there. I like that after these scenes, <laughs> I think after the, like, the scene where we get the famous, like, pea soup throw up uh, that happens on Father Karras, after that, he still tells the mother, like, uh, I don't think an exorcism is what you need. You need to put this kid under, like, six months of observation. I think after listening to a recording of her speaking both Latin and French and then also somehow speaking English backwards, that's where he saw, he decides, okay, I need to go talk to the higher-ups and get them on this. Yeah, he's going to go. He's going to get some permission from the church to do an exorcism. They're also going to say, like, you really need to call in an expert. And there is one man. One man who we know has performed an exorcism successfully before. You haven't seen him for most of this movie, but he did open this film. So we have established him as a character. And that is Father Marin, who is right now just wandering around the woods somewhere, but can still receive mail. Oh, so a, they send him a letter. He's in Woodstock. They, they specifically name drop Woodstock. Like that's where Father Marin is right now. And audiences in 1973 to hear that this priest is hanging out by Woodstock had to sound hilarious. Yeah, except for them, they like they don't cut to a, the concert venue. They cut to the middle of an actual literal <laughs> woods. <laughs> so a different Woodstock, apparently. Someone just brings him a letter. He's like, oh, well, shit, okay. And now Father Marin is heading to Georgetown, and he arrives at the house in that shot. Yes, that shot. So 
the car is going to pull up into the fog and the mist and out Father Marin with his hat and his coat and his briefcase is going to come so that he's silhouetted against the lamplights of the street and the mist is going to surround him and we just get that stark silhouette walking up to the door. And you're like, this is yes. an incredibly dramatic. This shot is inspired by a painting, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, a René Marguerite painting, The Empire of Light. It's a 1954 painting. And it's a very interesting painting because on the bottom half, you do get this very dark shadowed street with this bright lit up lamplight and the cast shadows. But then as you pan up above the tree line, it is a bright, beautiful blue sunlit day. Mm. And that was kind of a Marguerite thing is to paint these very realism type of pieces, but that often conjectured with some sort of uncanny contrast, like this idea that this bright sky is above them and it does not reach this very, very shadowed street. We're actually just going to get complete night here. We're not going to follow the Marguerite painting up into the brightly blue lit sky. But Mm -hmm. there were a couple of art inspirations that Friedkin drew from. He apparently got a bunch of art books and was flipping through them to get inspiration for different scenes. And the Marguerite one comes here. The other interesting one is that he actually got a collection of Bosch paintings and gave them to the sound mixers. And he said, I want the film to sound like this. And hands them a bunch of Bosch paintings. Nice. And they succeeded, right? That's where they actually got the inspiration. Like, well, let's just right on. put a bunch of mix of weird sounds. We're, we're going to get some pigs. We're going to get some chickens. We're going to get some bees. <laughs> we're going to get some leather. And we're just going to pile it on top of each other because that's a Bosch meeting. Oh, uh, so, very cool. Yeah. Well, when Father, sounds like as Bosch. Father Marin arrives, we fade into a few of the shots of Reagan's eyes have now gone full demonic green. Uh, the demon knows that this priest is coming near. Marion arrives. Damien is like just effusive, like, oh, thank you. It's just it's an honor to meet you. And immediately Marion says, OK, go go to the church. Go get, get me this. Get me this. Get me this. Come back here and we're going to start things up. You you don't want to know the background. on it. No, just go get the shit. I'm like, oh, OK, yes, sir. I just I love that Marion immediately goes into like just Damien becomes this whipping boy in, a, in an odd way. I, I like that dynamic. Yeah. So because he knows what's up. It's also another really great makeup moment because he is 44 when he shot this and this 30 years aging makeup is brought to us by Dick Smith and it's great. It it's is. Really, it's really very great. convincing. What's fascinating is like in the sequel, we do a flashback to a young father Marin and it's just Max von Sydow without any of the makeup. One of the very few interesting things about the sequel. And then we get the cold, cold room. Oh my God. So another room. just mechanical setup. Friedkin wanted to be able to see during the exorcism, everybody's breaths, because this room was cold. The demon had sucked all warmth out of the room. So they built a big refrigerator. (laughs) And they filmed the entire last scenes of this movie in this walk-in freezer refrigerator. The on-set photos have the entire crew in parkas. God, I can't imagine what what this had to be like to film. Well, specifically for poor 12-year-old Linda Blair, who's in a nightgown. God damn. And so the priests, at least, are in some clothing. They've got those felts, robes on, and whatnot. Linda Blair is in a nightgown in a room that, when they started filming, was zero degrees Fahrenheit. Good God. And they could film for... 
I've, I've seen some sources say only three minutes, but William Friedkin himself said an hour and a half is what they were able to do at a time because the lights that were in the set would start to warm it up and then the breaths would start to dissipate. And so everybody would take a break, they'd chill the room back down and then they'd go back in there. Yeah. And so these breaths, since you know they're, we don't have digital <laughs> optics really yet, uh, these are actual cold breaths that so, are happening in a yeah. refrigerated space. And Linda Blair to this day, she's like, I, I hate the cold. Yeah. <laughs> it was so cold on yeah. that set. Can't but blame her. She's a champ. She, she pushed through. But yeah, this is the exorcism scene exorcism scene why can't i say exorcism I, just, I hate that word but so many things that people know from this movie happen in this single scene the holy water your mother sucks cocks in hell the demon tongue the power of christ compels you this is it's all in this scene and it's really the whole thing is just fascinating to watch yeah, Karis is losing his religion in reverse. Like, he's yeah. slowly getting that faith back. It's like watching a, a young girl levitate through demon power. Like, yeah, that'll put the faith back in you, I think. Yeah, he, he's not very useful in the scene for a very long time. Not he's just really. kind of blank staring at stuff. Yeah, it's also, it's a powerhouse for Max von Sydow. You just, like, his voice is so beautiful when he's yelling at the demon, like, Be quiet, foul one! The demon shot be gone on he's going through the rites of exorcism a line that does get overlooked because everyone always thinks back on your mother sex cocks in hell there is a moment where the demon yells at Karis like fuck him in the ass Karis come on fuck him like <laughs> demanding see because once again this demon is just trying to get people laid <laughs> like that's his raison d'etre if people would just revelry and fuck around him I'm sure he would have been yeah. fine like that's all he wants you gotta, you gotta read between yeah. the lines, people. You just gotta give the demon what he wants. Yes. Just, and just uh, some good after they say the power of Christ compels you 14 times, I counted. That apparently is the magic number and the demon relaxes. All right. Well, good number to know. But then it's not over. It's, it's never over. <laughs> it's oh, never over. Oh, no, no. So basically this guy, like the demon's gonna start just fucking with Karis, like mother style that I'm your mother yeah, and speaks can you do this to voice. me and he just blank stares at shit so Marin's like you're just getting in the way like yeah. get out and so <laughs> you he are kicks fucking Marin useless out. guy get out of here then Marin comes back in once he feels like he's resettled uh, or Karis comes back in once he feels like he's resettled Marin dead on the floor because dude had a heart attack yep. because the demon is stronger and that's when he gets really pissed he's <sighs> like alright just uh, I'm done with this shit like fucking take me instead yeah so he starts just punching this little girl in the face. There's this like kind of great shot prior where it's like, I got like the Lestat rockstar spotlight style <laughs> shot where like, we just get her like kind of silhouette and lit on the bed and her arms are like upstretched and it's very Lestat. But yeah, he just starts punching this chick in the face, invites the demon into himself instead. And the demon's like, sure, man, like I'll, I'll take this upgrade, goes into his body Karis fights him for a second, long enough to just swan dive out the window and plummet down these steps. They did have a stuntman who literally jumped out a window and then right, he also right on. went down some stairs. <laughs> and not at the same time. These stairs are actually much further away from the house that uh, yeah. they're made to look in the film. But 
The Exorcist stairs, they are located in Georgetown. Okay. They're in the intersection of M Street and Canal Road. Oh, thank and God for the context. Okay, now I know. They are a very long set of very steep concrete steps. The stunt coordinator put some really thick rubber on these steps to mm. try to minimize it, but most of the stuntmen did not want to do it. There's Ooh. one guy who was like, nah, I'll throw myself down Hold my stairs. beer, I got this. And said he went to the very zen meditation place to just tumble down these steps. I think he did the take twice. Ooh, and damn. Georgetown students, fun little capitalist ventures that they are, since their uh, apartments were overlooking these steps, they actually charged people $5 to come and hang out on the rooftops to watch the stunt. <laughs> so they, nice. They capitalized on that. But yes, he jumps down the steps. It sometimes gets me thinking this query of... Did suicide, like, damn his soul, or is there, like, a demon-slaying, child-saving loophole? I don't know. But he just goes for it. He he jumps off. And well, he then get... his... Go ahead. His friend Dyer shows up. Yeah. To save his soul. But he didn't know Dyer was going to be there, so I'm just saying. That's like, true. He, yeah. he was ready to commit. Mm-hmm. And Dyer is going to give him his last rites in a scene that apparently took 17 takes because Friedkin did not like what... Dyer was bringing to the picture. Okay, yeah, I've heard this story before, but go ahead. Dyer was played by not an actor, but an actual Jesuit priest from Rochester, New York, who taught at McQuaid Jesuit High School. Well, Rochester, I've heard of that town. Yeah, he hated the book, apparently, when he read it, but somehow got (laughs) talked into doing this uh, this movie. And Friedkin was like, do you trust me? He's like, yeah, I guess. And he slaps him across the face. Oh, God. To get this final take, because this dude was not bringing it. Fucking and hell, in an man. interview, the guy who plays Dyer was talking about how his hands is, like, shaking in that scene. And that's not acting or an affect. Like, he was just so exhausted. He, like, could not control his body anymore. Ugh. Like, he was, he was shocked because he had just been punched in the face. So, once again, doing anything to get the shot. But gives him his last rights. I do actually really believe the emotion and the sorrow in this scene. I find mm-hmm. it to be the most emotionally effective scene in the entire film yeah. is Dyer's sorrow over losing his friend. So this non-actor just really brings it. Maybe it was the punch to the face. I don't know. But <laughs> it, it was takes. successful. Exorcisms. All right. Exorcisms. 101. How do we do it? Let's get down to this. Okay. So this is, this is a little bit more of like a history of a brief bullet-pointed history of exorcisms, but in the Catholic dogma, it is considered a sacramental. So that is different from Mm. a sacrament. And they have this general idea that, quote-unquote, integrity and efficiency do not depend on the rigid use of an unchanging formula or the ordered sequence of prescribed actions. Its efficiency depends on two elements, authorization from valid and and licit church authorities and the faith of the exorcist so for a very long time you didn't have to follow a very strict system and this is especially going to be because there really there's a couple of mentions in the bible of the jesus figure performing exorcisms Mm. but there's not actually a exorcism 101 breakdown of how you would do this yourself which is why baptists apparently i learned in researching this don't really subscribe to exorcisms much at all because they're like, eh, if it's not in the Bible, <laughs> like we're, we're not supposed to right. do it, right? Like it's more just a, a symbol mm. of, you know, God's word will, will help us. Now, the Catholics though, and the Lutherans also maintained a exorcism type of thing, but they were generally from different grimoires and different little things like that. 
and are not going to actually solidify any sort of ritual until 1614 is the first time that the Catholic Church is going to have a sanctioned exorcism drawn up. The exorcism that we get prior to that, that's the really interesting one, is the Benedictine Vade Retro Satana, and that is the Step Back Satan mm. evocation. This is actually still inscribed on the back of Benedictine crosses. So Benedictine crosses have some letters on them, and they are the inscriptions in reference to the Step Back Satan invocation. It sounds like a dance number. Step Back Satan! Yeah, it also kind of relates a little bit to the get behind me Satan verbiage that we get in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So there's the vade retro me Satana, which is the get behind me Satan. But this is just the get back Satan or get behind Satan. And that was a little medievalist exorcism. We can find it going back to the early 13th century and seems to be attributed to a couple of different folk tales. There's one that's attributed to this devil's bridge where this architect sold his soul to the devil. So a little Phantom of the Paradise coming in <laughs> and then subsequently repented and wearing the stole with this written on it, exercised the demon away or whatever. And I have that little exorcism because the fun thing is it's only four lines long. Oh, okay. Let's go it ahead is... and uh, get one going here. May the holy cross be my light. Mm -hmm. May the dragon never be my guide. Be gone, Satan. Never tempt me with your vanities. What you offer me is evil. Drink the poison yourself. Oh. And that's apparently all you needed for like hundreds of years. Uh, uh, I feel a little that, less demonic now because of that. So, to yeah. exercise Satan. Not bad. But the Catholic Church, being the Catholic Church, Ugh. is like... Now we we need to no, we, we need to make this a little more dramatic. Right? <laughs> we gotta we gotta really build some stuff. It's like up. a te so like a Catholic wedding, we gotta draw this out, draw it out. Here we go. Yes. So that was when the the Catholic Church officialized an exorcism ritual in 1614, and Oof. they are gonna include the Benedictine get back Satan whole <sighs> thing in nice. it. And what's really gonna be fun is that. This 1614 thing is going to remain untouched for centuries <laughs> because, as we mentioned, like Catholics were like, oh, at some point they're like, we're starting to understand more about this whole mental illness thing and drug use and a lot of other reasons that people might exhibit signs sure. of possession without being possessed. So, yeah, th this isn't really a thing anymore. And then all of these people started reading The Exorcist. They started watching The Exorcist. They started watching and interacting with all of the exorcism spin-off media. And they're like, no, nah, I think I really need an exorcism, though. And this is going to grow and grow to the point that the Catholic Church did what it hadn't done in almost 400 years <laughs> and revise the exorcism ritual in on January 26th of 1999, Yikes. it is going to publish something called Of Exorcisms and Certain Supplications. It is an 84-page document that comes in two chapters and appendices, and that is now the official exorcism ritual that still is highly regulated. They still are like, this should only be performed by an official priest because all of you crazy, crazy assholes out there that are just maverick running around trying to tie people down and exercise Ugh. them without just you know, getting them some proper medication that that's a problem so but there is a yeah there's an official thing that so our culture grew to be so superstitious that the catholic church had to actually amend a 1614 ritual in 1999 
Yeah, it was it's part a... of history. We're, we're making history here, guys. Uh, yes, we are. In 400 years, they're going to be like those assholes in 1999 <laughs> that had to, you know, <laughs> oh, resurgence man. and exorcisms. Oh. And then we get this kind of, yeah, aftermath. A little epilogue, yeah. Little Regan, whose face is way more healed than I would assume it would be, but at least they're still bringing those bruises through. Yeah, so we don't know for she, sure she like how much stuff. time has passed between the, the the events of that night and like the last day or the last time that we see Regan. So it could have been a few weeks uh, or what have you. But yeah, something definitely. Yeah, she's got some scars left from it. And Dyer shows up. She apparently doesn't remember anything, according to her mother, but yet when she sees this priestly outfit, gets overwhelmed by gratitude and mm-hmm. kisses him on the cheek. Yeah. So she possibly does remember. And then they they drive away. They've packed up this house in a weird way, like put some dust cloths on. It's unclear how much of the stuff is stuff they brought with them to this rented house mm-hmm. versus that they're just putting dust cloths over. I don't know. It's weird. But yeah, then they, they drive away. The Chris is going to give Father Dyer Karis's medallion, Saint's necklace, whatever, that had been left in Regan's room. And there are going to be two different endings to this film. In the original one, Mm -hmm. he is going to take that medallion and he's going to go and he's just going to look down the steps and reflect. Yep. And that's going to be the end. In longer takes, he gives the medallion back to Chris, tells her, hang on, you might need this. And then he's going to look at the steps, but then he's going to run into Kinderman. And Kinderman (laughs) is still just trying to get a priest to go to the movies with him. So he's going to ask him, hey, I got these movie passes. Do you want to come with me? And the guy's like, I've seen it. And he's like, well, how about lunch then? And then he quotes Casablanca at him that this could be the beginnings of a new and beautiful friendship. This was cut as well for very similar Friedkin reasons of, like, Blatty was really insistent where he's like, this needs to stay in because the audience needs to know that good still triumphs, right? There's still good in the world. Like, people are going to live through. And Friedkin's like, bitch, if they can't get by the end that there may still be some good in the world, like, this friendship with a cop is not going to save that uh, narrative. Like, so there's... That... <laughs> That's just so strange because the relationship that this sets up that comes up in the third movie the third movie is like it's not a tale of there being good in the world if anything it's even darker than this movie in strange in a strange way so that's just surprising that that blatty had that point of view like oh no we need to let them know there's there's good in the world still and then he makes a whole movie about how there is not good in the world yeah i don't know blatty really believed in that triumph of, of good over evil and whatnot <laughs> Friedkin was like, I I don't really care what people take from this film. (laughs) And he actually even said at the beginning in the intro that people tend to take away from this film whatever they're initially going to bring to the film. So if they come into the film thinking that the world is largely a pessimistic, nihilistic, evil space, they come out of the film thinking that the world is a pessimistic, nihilistic, evil place. And if they come in believing that there's good forces that will ultimately triumph, that's their takeaway in the end. Sure. So this film doesn't really sway somebody from their fundamental philosophy or theology or outlook one way or the other. And that is why it is successful to a large group of people, because at least the original cut doesn't really try to pander or say anything or remark on that. And 
part of that is Friedkin himself being a secular director. And yeah, whereas Blatty is a devout Catholic. So yeah, slight clashing of ideals there, I think. That's The Exorcist. I mean, we've said so much about this film while we're talking about it, but what else do we need to say about this film, London? I don't know if you want to talk about what this is actually based on, or... All right. In 1949, there was a Washington Post article about an exorcism that was done on a boy that was, some sources said, from St. Louis, some sources said uh, in Connecticut... Uh, it's a little like back and forth a little bit. And that was the article that William Peter Blatty read and that stayed with him. And that's what inspired him to write the novel. The thing is, uh, a lot of details of that original story are pretty fraudulent when you investigate them. If you don't have any profit in the story being true, because all of the story came from the Catholic priests that worked with on this exorcism, and they definitely had a reason to say, like, oh, yeah, yeah we totally, we saved this kid. We, we did a really great thing here. It was the story of this kid named, well, he was, like, known under pseudonyms Roland Doe or Robbie Mannheim. His real name might be out there somewhere, but it's kind of hard to track down. I wasn't able to find it. They actually randomly have his real name in... Oh, do they? Okay. The special features of the exorcist. Oh, disc. Okay. I can't remember what it is, though. All right. Yeah. Well, the differences, the key differences, I think, to find here are that in the exorcist novel and film, the child that gets possessed is prior to possession, like this just happy as can be, sweetest kid possible scenario. And the possession is a stark contrast to like her actual personality. And investigators who much later who talked to people who knew the kid all said, like, this guy, this kid was a little shit. He was a, a bratty 14-year-old. He was an only child. He was a complete asshole to neighbors all the time. So if this kid was possessed, he had been possessed since he was five years old. He was just an, a, a little asshole all the time. And the things that, you know, they said, like, this kid was able to do, like, they were reports of... The words uh, demon and hell being like appearing on the kid's chest. But you think about for two seconds, this kid can just use his fingernails and carve whatever letters he wants to in his skin really quickly. There were stories of this kid like he was uttering Latin, which was not a language he had studied. But this is 1949, prior to Vatican II. If this kid had been to a single Catholic mass in his life, he had heard a lot of Latin. Because prior to Vatican II in the 1960s, all Catholic masses were conducted in Latin as opposed to, you know, today where they're all conducted in just whatever the native language of the congregation is. Using that as a point of like, oh yeah, I definitely possessed because he spoke Latin. Like, yeah, that's a little wishy-washy there. And on top of that, all the facts that are presented to the Washington Post, like I said, were presented by Catholic priests who had a vested interest in promoting this story of a kid being possessed by the devil and thus saved by Catholicism. So... It's a very weak story to base something like this on. Uh, it's It makes for a fun movie, makes for a fun story, but to say that it is all based on facts and reality is very fraudulent and very irresponsible. So basically there was, though, yeah, this kid mm -hmm. that had been rumored, the newspaper article came out, and then William Blatty saw the newspaper article while he was at Georgetown and decided to write the novel. Right. Friedkin, when he started working on this film did try to adhere to the folklore that surrounded sure. this yeah. event, I guess is the best way to kind of put it. And so Friedkin did do his research and got access to 
the original journals of these priests that had worked on the exorcism. He went and he talked to the people who had first and second hand accounts. And so the things that he tried to work in were the things that came from that event. And it was hilarious to hear Freakin talk about him because Freakin, as a secular skeptic, is just kind of like, I mean, I don't think any of this actually happened. Yeah. (laughs) this This is what... Oh. The people involved said happened, so we just you know documentary style. Wow, like, I just adhered love, to. I love the idea the of freaking talking to these priests who worked in the original thing, and they're like just very like passionately telling him the story, and he's just politely nodding like, uh huh, uh huh. It's uh-huh. like and then his head turned around, like all right, like we'll, yeah, we'll put that down. Okay, but buddy, sure, sure. What this kid also allegedly did this, the one that it was based off of, is. He used a Ouija board. Oh, so yeah. So this kid had a Ouija board. And this is where, when I say that the exorcism popularizes the demonology of the Ouija board, there was some talk before this movie within certain religious sects in the way that Harry Potter books are demonic. <laughs> the Ouija board is demonic, right? It was a light type of uh, yeah. outrage. But... There And also in the Mazes and Monsters idea that D&D made this kid run away or oh, whatever. So they were looking for something to blame. And people on this case noticed that this kid owned a Ouija board and thought, well, maybe that had something to do with his possession. So the Ouija board being brought into The Exorcist is also based on the folklore surrounding this 1949 possession event. Damn you, Parker Brothers! Or whoever published the Ouija board. <laughs> Speaking of those spinoffs. Oh, yeah. You know you know what the movie left me with, though? Was so many unanswered questions. Like, what did the Catholic Church think of what the Father Marin was doing? Uh, what about that priest and that cop who became friends at the end of the movie? And what the fuck was Father Marin doing in Africa? These are questions you need answered. And the answers are found in the sequels and prequel. Zuh, sort of. With a Z. So, the films from the Fuck My Life Film Festival that I went through for this. Uh, Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Trademark Fuck My Life Film Festival. So, trademark Fuck My Life Film Festival. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. I had heard about this movie for many years, and you really can't grasp how crazy this movie is until you sit down and watch it, because it is baffling. The general concept of this film, the thrust of the film, is that the Catholic Church has questions about what Father Marin did. They never bring up Father Karras at all in Exorcist 2, which is curious to me. He's brought up a lot more in the third one, but we'll get to that. The second movie, they send this other priest, Father Lamont, played by Richard Burton, to investigate the exorcism of Reagan McNeil. So we now go to see Reagan, who is 17 years old, and goes to therapy. And when I was watching this, I mentioned to Michelle, uh, yeah, there's therapy in this movie. I'm not going to waste your time with it because it is absolutely absurd. The therapy rooms that Reagan goes to are in the offices all have glass walls on them, which Michelle's like, what? Glass walls in a therapy room? That's insane. And this is like. The late 70s, so I think it's prior to HIPAA, which, you know, set down a lot of guidelines about therapy. But just common fucking sense says do not do therapy in a... The demands of naturalist mid-century design supersede (laughs) the needs of the therapy patient, okay? Like, that that tracks to me. This movie, it loses you so fast in just 
what? Like, I didn't take notes while I was watching it, but I think my notes would just be a series of, huh? Uh, okay. And ending with, wait, that's it? The, this movie like loses you so quickly because like the doctor who is played by Louise Fletcher, who would have been most known to audiences at the time as Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, is meant to be the the caregiver, the positive caregiver in this movie. So that's just really strange casting on the part of John Borman, the, the director of this second movie. She has like a weird machine that's supposed to hypnotize you and make you dream the same dream as the other person. So like there's a weird inception ankle going on here, even though we never actually see the dream that's happening. Uh, Father Lamont shows up. He's played by Richard Burton, who he just looks confused the entire movie. Uh, there are a lot of stories that he would start the shooting day sober in them very drunk. And you can kind of see where that's starting to happen because he, he looks lost most scenes that he's in. Uh, he does uh, he kind of does a, a dream sync up with Reagan at one point and he sees like Reagan's demon double uh, almost giving the doctor a heart attack this for whatever reason leads him to go to Africa to the area North Africa where Father Marin like is said to have you know been years and years ago there's a whole thing with Locust going on there he meets James Earl Jones Oh, well, at least locusts make an appearance. Yeah, locusts show up. So I guess there was like, it's just, it's not explained at all what the hell the locusts are about. If you understand Pazuzu, then yeah, you get what the locusts are there for, but they do not explain it whatsoever in the film. Or if they do, it's not explained very well. I mean, considering they don't uphold any other Pazuzu stuff in the film, like, yeah, like, it makes sense that you wouldn't go to the, oh, this is a Pazuzu thing. At the very end of the movie, that for whatever reason, they go back to the Georgetown house, which they couldn't secure the location. So the movie spent millions of dollars recreating the house in the first movie. Reagan has a demonic double that doesn't have the demon face on because apparently Linda Blair did not want to do the demon makeup again, which, yeah, understandable. The demon double is trying to seduce Father Lamont, so Lamont and Reagan's double are making out, and it's very clear that Richard Burton and Linda Blair are very uncomfortable with this scene. There are locusts again. Reagan somehow dispels them. It's not clear what happens to Father Karras. The end. It's... I can't even begin to describe how just all over the place this film is. Apparently, from what I can tell, the script was changing day by day. The trailer to it, if you can track that down, is actually kind of badass. The trailer is just this awesome montage of the movie with this really cool music. So kind of like the snowman, where the trailer, badass. Movie? <laughs> Excusion? Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know, like, what were you selling me on, trailer? That's messed up. It's worth a watch just as a curiosity. It's so strange uh, as a film and as a sequel to a horror film. Yeah, definitely worth a watch if you are like like I said into that trademark fuck my life film festival uh lifestyle it's a uh, it's fascinating so that movie comes out that's like late 70s fast forward to 1990 and now we get to Exorcist 3 Legion which this movie is a, also a curiosity and I think definitely worth a watch if people said like what should I watch for Exorcist I would say watch the first one watch the third one and you're good that's all you need to watch because they do connect I think in better ways than the second one does in the third movie it's the main character is Detective Kinderman who in the first movie was played by Lee J. Cobb and now is played by George C. Scott and 
the way I would say is that if the first movie's main character is a priest who has lost his faith in God, this third movie is a detective who has lost faith in humanity and is the most bitter, angry individual ever. And it's written and directed by William Peter Blatty, and it's based on his novel, Legion, which he wrote after The Exorcist. The novel came out in 1983, and he finally got to uh, make the movie in 1990. It's a masterclass in making your audience have to fill in the blanks on what what is happening in terms of the gore and the violence, because there are so many scenes where we just see George C. Scott's character, like Kinderman, lift a, a blanket of a corpse and he just looks in and the horror on his face sells it so much. And then later on, he'll describe what was going on. Like he'll say, like, this young man had his, this young black boy, his head was cut off. And then the head of a statue of Jesus was put on it. And the statue was painted like a minstrel show. And you're like, oh my God, that is just horrific. And there are so many other scenes where you hear a murder happening. The sound design in this movie is fan-fucking-tastic. Fan you hear a murder happening. You hear the screams, but you're shown these insert shots that are, like, kind of connected to what's going on, and you're, again, just left to fill in the blanks. And also, what's fascinating is that the dialogue in this film is fucking hilarious. I don't know. It's, like, a strange thing to say, but Kinderman, he is still friends with Father Dyer. Father Dyer is like an optimist and tries to tell him, like, no, no, the world's a good place. And like a great exchange in this is that they're sitting down at a restaurant and Kinderman says, the whole world is a homicide victim, Father. Would a God who is good invent something like that? Plainly speaking, it's a lousy idea. It's not popular. It's not a winner. Now, oh, there you go. Blaming God. I mean, you wouldn't want to live forever. Yes, I would. No, you wouldn't. You'd get bored. I have hobbies. <laughs> and That's it's, like my take on it. Everyone's like, you get bored. I'm like, nah, I got stuff to do. Yeah, you, you got stuff to do. Brad Dourif is in this film, and this is probably my favorite, like, aside from Creamer Worm Tongue in the Lord of the Rings movies, this is like probably my favorite live action Brad Dourif performance because, I mean, obviously his best performance is Chucky in the Child's Play movies, but he's playing this guy who's been possessed by another demon who years and years ago was the Gemini killer. And it's mostly, he's the Zodiac killer. It's the, you know, what he's meant to be. And apparently what they're saying here is that after, at the end of the first movie, when Father Karras went over those steps, he didn't die. His soul left, but Pazuzu, being annoyed that he got fucked over, allowed another demon to come in and possess Father Karras. Father Karras is then sent off and he's in a coma for several years, and then when he finally comes to, he's able to shapeshift his face between, like, Jason Miller's face, so, like, Jason Miller's in this movie, too, and also Brad Dourif, and Brad Dourif's scenes are so badass. Like, he is, like, use this dialogue is, like, written for Brad Dourif to just, like, chew the scenery on and say the most fucked up things possible, and that, it sells the movie for me. And the movie, it didn't get much, like, attention when it first came out, but I think in some ways it is superior to the first movie in just the way that it upsets you or the way that it, like, unnerves you. And there's, like, only one jump scare in the whole movie, and I would say by far it is one of the most effective jump scares I have ever seen in a film because there's so many fake-outs on what's really going to happen until, like, it goes, like, by for two minutes. You think, oh, okay, okay, we're cool. The movie's just fucking with me. Oh, dear God, what is that? There's a hot take that 
Exorcist 3 might be better than Exorcist 1. Is that what you're saying? In some ways. In some ways. But no, I would say Exorcist 3, like in some departments, is a superior film. Uh, to exorcists, you know, I mean... Interesting. I haven't seen it, so I can't really no, push back on that. I would say, yeah, definitely give uh, the third one a look. Then, you know what we really needed to see, though? We needed to see Father Karras as a young man played by an actor who was older than Max von Sydow when he made the first movie. <laughs> so, we have Dominion. But does it answer the question of whether or not the first 15 minutes of The Exorcist has anything to do with the, the latter half of the movie. Uh, yeah, well, in the first movie, they briefly mentioned that Father Marin conducted an exorcism years and years ago on a child in North Africa. So that's kind of what the prequels mm -hmm. are taking as a jumping off point. So the general story of the prequel is that Father Marin was a priest in Warsaw, Poland, and Nazis came to the town as the war was dying down and they shot a lot of people. Like they said like, okay, one of you has killed one of our officers. Uh, priest, you're gonna tell me who did it. If you don't tell me who did it, I'm gonna kill 10 people. And Father Marin won't do it. And instead they say like, okay, fine. Who are the 10 people that you want, you want us to kill? And he's like, no, I'm not gonna say that either. They're like, well, we're gonna kill everybody then. And he finally says, okay, fuck it, fine. And he starts pointing out people, pointing out to the people who actually, he knows actually killed the Nazi officer and then point to the people that he thinks should just be killed off. It's it's kind of a Sophie's Choice situation that he's been put through. And so he has now lost his faith. He's hanging out in North Africa. Some people come by and say, hey, uh, we know that you have experience in archaeology. There's a dig going on. We want you to check it out. So go there and do it. They find a church that apparently was built and then immediately buried. They unearth the church. Demons get out. There's possessions. There's a love interest who's worthless. Father Karras fights the demon and gets his faith back. The end. So pretty just the story itself is worthless. What's fascinating about the prequels is that there's two versions of this story. I don't think I've ever seen this before. In 2004, they made this movie on a pre-existing script. Like, And Morgan Creek, the studio behind the, the Exorcist movies at this point, they really want a prequel to happen. So they hire on uh, Paul Schrader to be the director and make this thing happen. And they tell him, okay, give us something like exciting, gory, lots of blood, lots of crazy stuff happening. Paul Schrader apparently decided, you know, that thing they asked me to give them? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a low-key psychological thriller. They hand the footage back. The studio says, fuck you, that's not what we said to do. He's like, well, too bad, that's what I gave you. So they fire him. <laughs> they bring on Rennie Harlan, and they said, okay, what can you do with this? And he says, uh, fucking nothing. You would have to reshoot like 90% of this movie. He says this thinking, no way are they going to do that. Guess what? $80 million later, they reshoot 90% of this goddamn film. I have watched both of them back to back, and there are only a handful of shots from the original shoot that are in the finished product. So, they're both insane films. They're both ridiculous. The first one is meandering, unnoteworthy mediocrity, the film that Paul Schrader made. The second one is also stupid as hell, but Rennie Harlan has a very kinetic style of filming. The camera is moving all over the place. The color grade is off the charts. So, it's at least interesting to look at, but they're both utterly 
pointless films that tell you nothing. The odd tie-ins to the original movies uh, really come from Rennie Harlan's reshoot, where we have lines repeated from the first movie where like someone offers Father Marion a drink and he says, like, oh, I shouldn't, but my will is weak, so fuck yeah, I'm going to have a drink. At one point, he finds that statue uh, in the dig from the original movie, drops it, a wind comes by, the earth covers it, and he digs for it, and he can't find it, so... Oh, that southwest wind, though. Yeah, the southwest wind came in and, like, it hit the thing. And then there's, uh, you mentioned that there was a, the opposition demon to Pazuzu was... Yeah, Lamashu. Okay, and she, like, brought on mischaracters or something, right? Right. Okay, there is a scene in both versions of this movie where a woman from the local tribe is giving birth, and she gives birth to a stillborn baby covered in maggots. Oh, well, I'm glad that they're actually drawing little snippets from the Babylonian myth cycles. Yeah, just a I little. Respect that. I just wish it wasn't a better movie. The maggots seem excessive, but okay. Yeah, there are four hours of me just going, what? Why is this even happening? Like, there are two attempts to make a movie nobody wanted to see, and that's what we end up with, is two versions of an Exorcist prequel. The first one, the one that was shot first by Paul Schrader, uh, was called Dominion, an Exorcist prequel. And then when it was reshot, it was then by Rennie Harlan, it was called Exorcist colon The Beginning. Rennie Harlan's version comes out first. It gets panned by credits, makes no money at the box office. And so the studio says, okay, fuck it. Let's release the original version of this thing. They give Paul Schrader a a pittance, like $35,000 to complete the special effects on this thing. And the CGI, there are CGI hyenas in this thing. They look horrible. I could do something better on After Effects on my computer today. That's how shitty these things look. And that comes out in 2005. It gets slightly better reviews, I guess, because it just wasn't quite as batshit insane as Rennie Harlan's version. Really, of the two, I kind of like Rennie Harlan's version. It seems like a more energetic second draft. Father Marin in these movies is played by Stellan Skarsgård, uh, who, that, that casting kind of makes sense to me. The Stellan Skarsgård is a young version of, of Marin as played by Max von Sydow. Yeah, okay, that tracks. And he looks more engaged in the second movie. In the first one, he looks just depressed all the time and never looks fully awake. In the second movie, he looks like he's like really into the action. So yeah, I, I prefer the crazy reshoot by the hack director, Rennie Harlan, because apparently he's just known for being a director for hire sometimes. Fair enough. So, yeah, seems like quite a ride. It's, it was quite a damn ride, I have to say. It's just a, a bunch of movies that really did not need to happen. I'm okay with the third one. Again, watch the first one, watch the third one. Those are the good ones. The other three movies are movies that really should not have happened at all. As most franchise sequels, <sighs> really. Yes, indeed. Good lord. But I do like that somehow the third is the one that comes out shining, because that, I feel, is very rare when yeah. the third one might be equivalent in, in some capacity. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, really what makes the third one really good to me, it's just a powerhouse performance from both George C. Scott and Brad Dourif. George C. Scott is such a, a bitter individual who's like, I think the fact that like he, he just naturally has that voice that sounds like his throat's been like scraped with steel wool right before he talks. Uh, it just makes it so good. And like, he is such a, a bitter personality. He, there's this amazing speech he gives where he talks about how, like, I can't go home yet. My mother-in-law is going to cook a carp for me soon, or for me and my wife, <laughs> but she's letting this damn carp swim in our bathtub, and I hate it. 
if I go home and I hear that fish swimming around, I'm going to kill it. <laughs> it's such a strange thing. Apparently, this was a speech that was in the original novel that didn't make it into the first movie. And William Peter Blatty is like, no, 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 man. That carp in a bathtub thing, that's too good. I got to put this in it. And trust me, George C. Scott sells it. So definitely worth it. All right. <sighs> Speaking of great individuals, top five. My top five. Okay, number five goes out to Mercedes McCambridge. She voiced the demon. And I, I want to put her in this list because she, I don't think she got very much credit for this when the movie first came out. They were really selling it as, you know, this was all Linda Blair uh, doing the acting and the voice. And I think Linda Blair got nominated for a few acting awards on the assumption that everything was her. Mm-hmm. So I think people like Mercedes McCambridge and uh, the other people who are voicing the demon got a little shortchanged on credit for that. So, you know, just especially Mercedes Cambridge based on mm-hmm. everything that she had to do to make that voice happen. Yeah, and Eileen Dietz probably there too. Yeah, in terms yes. of Just all the sitting in she had to do. Mm-hmm. So honorable mention for me goes out to whatever either divine intervention or just secular coincidence brought Paul Bateson into this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because without that moment, we would not get cruising. And that would be a sad, sad world. Wild. My actual number five, this one's a tie. I don't generally do ties, but this one seemed important. Okay. So number five is William Friedkin. All right. For the Friedkinness that he brings to this. I mean, it's still very a Friedkin movie. And he did what he needed to do to get the shot. And he's going to share that slot with all of the goddamn people who had to put up. God damn. <laughs> all of the poor people that had to put up with his bullshit on set. <laughs> because I almost didn't want to put him on this list because he was such an asshole, but like this really is a very William Friedkin film. It's a good film. It's making the great choices and it's making them in the face of the screenwriter. Like just his ballerness of like, this doesn't need to be here. We're not going to pander to the audience. Like, I don't fucking care that you're here on set next to me and I'm critiquing your writing. Like, deal with it. And yeah, so that attitude served him well, but I think other people suffered, but they, they prevailed too. So yeah, that whole set. Who's your number four? My number four is it's kind of a who, but it's more of a what. And the number four is the sound design for this film. So that go, I mean, that spread across a lot of people, including our boy from El Topo, mm-hmm. because the, the sound in this movie just worked so well for me. I should say like the sound design in the third movie is also fantastic. So Though I think that uniting factor is what makes those two movies like work mm-hmm. together for me. Yeah, Friedkin and sound, man. Yeah, the sound of that subway screeching by, the sound of the anvil hammer at the start of the movie that bleeds through scenes. All of those blend together so well for me and make this just a great immersive atmospheric experience of a film. Yeah, I too went with departments instead of people just mm-hmm. because... These are some really big, complicated departments that works yeah. on this film. My number four is just the cinematography. Sure, yeah. So all of the people who brought the cinematography to the picture, both figurative, really, and literally, there were some really great, beautiful shots. There were a lot of interplay of light. Getting those shadows on film without actually having the mats completely swallow themselves yeah, it was a fun technical exercise to to watch the camera play here. All right. Who's your number three? My number three is the author, William Peter Blatty. 
I mean, wrote, produced the film. I mean, was responsible for making it happen. I read that he insisted on William Friedkin directing this thing. I, but, uh, you know, just uh, respect to him for even though the events he drew on, we've kind of discussed her slightly fraudulent still though he had the inspiration to make it happen brought it to a novel brought the novel to the screen so props to mr blatty for making that happen and also i just enjoyed discovering his uh, interesting style for the third movie so you know props to him all right and, uh, my number three the sound mixing department all right yeah what did you like the most about it I really loved the layering. Yes. So this okay. was one of the early examples, if not the first example that I can think of, to layer that many tracks for just the sound effects themselves. Mm-hmm. There's cool, uncanny sound that still worked for the environment. I also did like some of the music stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Friedkin and sound, they just go hand in hand to me, and he pays a lot of attention and it pays off does work really well my number two goes out to what i feel was the performer that took the most for all of this and that's linda blair uh we kind of discussed how much she got thrown around was filming those scenes in a freezing room and nothing but a nightgown uh, had to sit through i'm sure hours on end of makeup to achieve that effect and good lord just everything that she had to go through to make this happen and the amount of force that she put into her performance as a 12 year old that is pretty impressive I normally do not care for child actors. So very few child actors convince me of a role, but Linda Blair definitely brought it, I, I think, in ways beyond her years on that one. And really, it it's fascinating watching that versus the second movie where she is really phoning it in. Side note, <laughs> best line of dialogue from the second movie, Reagan is talking to another young girl in the therapy center and says, "Oh, what are you here for?" Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm autistic. Oh, oh, okay. What, what, what are you here for? Oh, I was possessed by a demon. Uh, <laughs> what? Oh, it's okay. He's gone now. <laughs> there is a movie out there that I have not seen that has to do with demon possession that I'm curious to see. I think it's called like Ava's Possessions or something, mm. and. It's a dark comedy that deals with the aftermath of possession where this woman's been possessed and then she's over it. But she's like, okay, did anybody pay my rent? And like like all these just like little things that nobody would remember to do. So her life's just totally fucked up. Like the the trailers look fun. I have to check that out. Um, You're number two. I I do agree with Linda Blair though. Okay. But my number two is the effects department. Right on. So Dick Smith and et cetera. Like all of the, the people that worked on the mechanics of the sets, the actual practical effects, makeup. I mean, everything, yeah, is mechanical and by hand. And that is very cool. They aren't perfect to me, but they are incredibly impressive under those conditions. All right. I think I had to put an asterisk next to my number one because I did not know some things that I know now having having heard you say them. But my number one is William Friedkin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I know more about how much he was abusing the actors. I'd heard a few stories, but goddamn, not as much as I have now. I may have notched him down a little bit more, but I really wanted to put him up, up number one for you know being brought onto this thing and really taking control and saying like, okay, we gotta do this. We're doing this. We're doing this. We are removing these things that explain things too much to the audience. We are leaving it ambiguous. I just respect any director who can 
have not as much of an ego as directors are typically said to have mm-hmm. and say like I'm going to leave this deliberately up to the interpretation of the audience like within the world of this movie the story I'm telling this is much this much it's clear but the interpretation the audience will have that is all up to them and I like a man who sets out with that intention in storytelling mm-hmm. I think is really cool and having this grounded reality of the film that has so many other supernatural elements I always found fascinating his directorial style and everything he brought together to make it all happen is just fascinating to me i just wish he were not such a colossal asshole at this time in his directing career as opposed to apparently now where he's just more okay yeah you interpret yeah actors you work it out you get two takes okay and go yeah we're good yeah he's a lot more chill now he also i mean he is a man that directs and that that is something that's respectable right he makes decisions he sticks to them he can take control of some stuff so that all yeah, that all tracks, and a lot of people have forgiven him hmm. is interesting, too. I mean, not forgiven, or just <sighs> in these interviews, they don't talk like he even requires forgiveness. They all talk like he's a really close friend of theirs and that they respect him. So I guess if they're the ones who received the treatment and they're chill with it, then it's not my place <laughs> to really hold it against him. Yeah. But it did, yeah, this one just... I feel like a lot of people, you know, made this movie happen. And so I was just kind of, yeah, working my way up from Friedkin. Uh, My number one actually is Linda Blair for the exact same reasons that you have her at number two. She is just, I don't necessarily think she's the best thing about this film by any means, but she is the one that just put up with the most stuff. And she was a little warrior. She made this stuff happen. And she's mature beyond her years, which was really interesting. And she still seems pretty chill as a human being in interviews looking back on it. So just to think that, yeah, this 12-year-old went through all of this and, and prevailed is impressive. So she she gets my respect. She gets my number one respect at this point. Oh, well, that's a, a, a mild look at The Exorcist. You know, we kind of skimmed the surface a little bit there. but Yeah, uh... this movie is so incredibly documented in terms of there are multiple special behind the scenes features out there like documentaries on the making of the exorcist there are books Mm -hmm. there are countless articles looking at the deconstruction of this film there was even a psychiatric article that came out after the film's release looking at the effects that this was having on patients so this film has left an impact and oh, yeah, yeah so there's really only the barest surface that one can scratch in a condensed time frame clearly it had an impact on us because here we are some time later and <laughs> we had a lot to say about yeah, the, that's the thing is it didn't have that much of an impact on me so that, that's <laughs> the incredible thing too but the Ooh. the making of this film is fascinating and yeah do, do you get a lingering sense of that and he's watching this what, how are you in demon possession films? Oh, uh, in, in demon possession films in general? Yeah, or the concept of demon possession oh. demons. Is that a trope that you like? Is that a trope that freaks you out? Mm, not a trope that freaks me out. I mean, I, I think like you, I'm kind of an agnostic skeptic. So no, it's not really something that worries me. Yeah, and I guess I should also touch this my... When I'm pointing out these quote-unquote plot holes that aren't really plot holes, they're just <laughs> questions that I have in the film, it's not because I don't, like, usually, obviously, from these things, 
we just we let things happen sure right like there's a lot of things in these movies that are like don't make any sense but we, we let them happen i guess why i question this one is because the film does take so much time to set up that initial scene in the dig and Mm -hmm. i just don't fully understand how it fits into the rest of the narrative i've read theories i just don't think anything fully explains why we go from yes the mesopotamian region a babylonian god to possible the devil himself possession in georgetown and how these are supposed to be exactly directly linked this is one of one of the world's greatest mysteries because we provided two things that seem <laughs> in sequence to be consequential to one another and i just i don't know i don't see it exactly but so i just have questions i don't have yeah. concerns i just have questions my only concern is will you safe or just the fuck out of here yeah, so I was trying to think of a good safer for this because I was like, well, I mean, we'll probably bring up every other religious terminology <laughs> in the um, the counterpoint. But ultimately, I think that this movie, yeah, the, the lingering impact is that people feel that, that that evil is out there. But the safest you can be watching this film really is just to come at it from a perspective of atheism. <laughs> and then everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> In a world without gods and monsters, you can just watch The Exorcist and critique Fazizi's role. Even in a world without gods and monsters, I'm still left with you. That's true, too. <laughs> if anything makes one believe in the devil, it would be our acquaintanceship. Oh, you almost said the F word, which for us is friendship. <laughs> uh, uh, exorcism. Now I do feel like I need to be excised. Oh, God. Atheism. How many times do I have to say it? 14? Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, ain't nobody's got time for that. Whatever. Atheism. that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!